I mean, some of the people you see on some of the social medias. I, I do you use Nextdoor at all? That kind of sort of one that's no. sort of local one. No, I'm on no. that uh, for locally. For, it's useful for selling stuff sometimes, or kind of knowing what's going on. But every time I kind of go onto it, it's just, <laughs> there are some really stupid people out there. And some really it's, it's all curtain twitches and stuff, isn't it? You know, looking out. And, and the conspiracy strange. theorists. And it's like, I mean, this this whole thing, the, the, the emergency alert thing today, it's just like. Oh, I know. I mean, Mine didn't go off. About that. That's I mean, it. I'm like, dead. That's it. No, we, yeah, we had we had two out of the three uh, phones in here went off, but the third one didn't. No. Yeah, no, my so other halves did, so she's safe. I, I would have I would have just perished in the workshop today. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just thinking it's, it's, it's the 2020s versions of the kind of the 1970s and 80s nuclear war klaxons, isn't it? Basically. It is, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. For those of us old enough to remember those old public service announcement things on BBC about what to do in the event of a nuclear war. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Which I suppose is just a follow on from. Air raid sirens and you know World War Two era stuff. I, I know. Off on the wireless. Exactly. Exactly. I, I mean, I think I don't know if I've told this story before. Jamie, you've definitely heard it, but I can't remember if I said this on the sort of podcast. When I first moved to Plymouth, uh, two thousand and one. Yeah, two thousand and one. The school I was teaching at was about a mile from the dockyards obviously military dockyards and what i didn't know was that every monday morning at 11 o'clock they test a klaxon and that klaxon is the klaxon for we've had a bit of a nuclear incident type klaxon and that's it that's exactly what it's intended for because it's a yeah it's a home for some yeah nuclear operated vessels and there's even in the in the phone book i found out later in the phone book there's kind of yeah if you live within a certain area there's instructions what to do in the phone book. i mean phone books it shows my age um you don't get those things anymore but basically there's instructions the very first page of the kind of all the phone books whether it's the sort of home directory or the yellow pages was basically the instructions what to do in the event of hearing that klaxon mm. And homes within, I think, a quarter of a mile of it were all issued with iodine tablets as well. I was like, I knew what the klaxon was, but I did not know that there was a practice klaxon 11 o'clock every Monday, including <laughs> Christmas Day, if it's on a Monday. So I'm partway through a lesson. Let's get into what's towards the end of the lesson. It's just before break time, which I think was 10 past 11. And I hear the klaxon go off. And it's it's only faint because yeah, windows were closed. And I, I was just like, and I was like, I, I was not panicking, but I was thinking, I know what that klaxon is. I don't like that I know what that klaxon is, and I can hear that <laughs> klaxon now. And a, a few of the students kind of sort of went, "It's all right, sir. It does happen every Monday, every Monday, eleven o'clock." I was like. And then one of them says, "Yeah, yeah, it's just like it's they just test it every every week, so don't worry." It's like, I was just like, ah. <laughs> this uh, a, a few kind of old friends of mine that worked in uh, in in similar areas, and uh, a few of the strategies that they employ is the other way around is to have 
like a regular kind of tick. So there'll be you know, like a one beep every minute or one beep every 30 seconds kind of thing. And you get so used to hearing that beep that then when there's a problem and the beep stops, yeah, then everyone just, it's much more easy to, uh, to, to tune not having the beep than it is to ignore an alarm kind of thing. And yeah, you suddenly like if there's is there's a, an interruption, or you, the the beep isn't there, and people just suddenly, it's like you know meerkat in front of. All oh, right, okay, there it is. There's the beep. <laughs> that would be. I think that that's probably quite. I I have visited a place where that was was done. It wasn't for very long, because mm. it, it was kind of, one of those things. Once you get getting used to it, would be annoying. Mm. <laughs> but like you say, once you get used to it, you just—it's like anything, isn't it? If you kind of live near a, a train track, yeah, yeah, you just, you just, you just learn to ignore. You tune it out, yeah. Or mm. live near a motorway, you just ignore it. Uh, but anyway, enough about kind of yeah, public service announcements and mm. you know, nuclear, nuclear, yeah, stuff. Nuclear ping pong, nuclear ping pong. That's the best way of thinking about it. <laughs> Um, Carl. Yes. You're the first guest who's actually almost suggested a bunch of kind of lines of discussion. Have I? Yeah. yeah Did I do that inadvertently today when I put yeah, that post Instagram up? Post. Well, no, I mean, it saves me having to think of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Of course. Just like, yeah, it's very good. Yeah. It's yeah. A... Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, where do you want me to start then? Well, Laura, I mean, Laura Kidd. Yeah. Yeah, so so Laura Kidd is a musician and um, and uh, somebody I came across a, a number of years ago. She um, is a solo artist and recorded under the name uh, She Makes War, um, and had a, a sort of modest um, a modest amount of success with a song called uh, Slow Puncture at the time. It was kind of just like a sort of slow chilled out tune and stuff. And a little while ago, um, I happened to be on Facebook and uh, a chap called Rat, who used to be the guitarist in a band called Ned's Atomic Dustbin, um, started talking about a collaboration that he'd had with this Laura Kidd. Uh, they'd formed a sort of two-person band called Obey Robots, and they were releasing um, an album. Um and what's been interesting about following this along for the last couple of months, really, is that they have really done a pretty good job of uh, using social media to gain traction around this album. And um, I recognised the name and kind of got back in touch with her sort of social media stuff, the, the YouTube channel that she runs and, um, and uh, uh, Instagram. Which is called PenFriend. Penfriend, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's her current um, persona, I would say. Uh, Obey Robots is this collaboration piece. Um, and th they did something really very interesting, which is just drumming up support through Facebook ads and other social media outlets. They managed to get their album to chart, I think, at number 20 in the album charts and number one in the independent album charts in the UK. Um, they didn't survive in the chart for that long, but mm -hmm. but fundamentally, you know, you don't get to number twenty by just selling one or two albums these days, right. in particular. Um, 
And I kind of cottoned on to um, a lot of her stuff on YouTube, which is talking about the, the business of being a creative person and trying to get your stuff out to an audience. And I found that enormously interesting. I mean, clearly I'm not a musician, you know, I'm just a chap that sort of mucks about in a workshop at the weekends and, you know, we'll film a few interesting projects and chuck them up on YouTube and maybe take a good snap here and there and stick that on Instagram. But what was interesting is, is that, you know, she was really sort of on, on her YouTube channel on a couple of videos and I'll send you links to them actually, because I think they've got a, a broad appeal regardless of your creativity, really what you're into. Um, but uh, she has some really neat tips, really, about managing your audience, really, getting them close to you. And I've seen a few mm. other sort of prominent people on YouTube, people like Peter Millard and so on, like, you know, setting up their own communities. But hers is really very basic, really. She has a website that you can subscribe through. You can become a uh, community member. I can't remember exactly the term she uses. Yeah, she's got a particular term for it, hasn't she? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And... Um, um, and but the important thing is, is she's got a ten thousand person long email mailing list that every time she records something new, she tells everybody on the list that it's available and they can go and get it. And she makes her living off the back of servicing that. Now she's spent years building it up, but I think if anybody's looking at a sort of a good way to go about, um, you know, sort of managing your creative business from the ground up and i've got friends of mine that are artists and fabricators so they're not traditional you know not makers in the sort of you know make a community sense they're, they're trying to make a living out of their work um mm. and i've suggested some of laura's videos to them as kind of inspiration pieces and i think everybody can get something from it really it's quite a quite a, an interesting channel to watch and, you know, if you just happen to like her music and want to buy it, that's even better. But in terms of being a creative person and sharing her secrets, she's very open about how she does it. Um, and interestingly, when I bought their last album, you know, I'm pretty certain it passed through their hands as well, or her hands. She does the fulfillment, she maintained. So she's that's like nice. a little one-person factory in her own right. And I, and I quite like that. I think that sort of grounds mm. a, a creator in something that people that are interested in what they do can kind of bite into and essentially you know um you know uh get behind i suppose yeah being a part of the full life cycle of it almost exactly yes you know a bit like um jimmy Duresta really in his ice picks right you know you'll put a video up of him you know grinding the ends of ice picks and you know that makes you feel like you know when you get one the chances are he has had something to do with mm. it manufacturer and that's not always the case with with ideas and creators as such to be honest but i like you know people like laura and um you know her projects really um are quite inspiring even though i'm doing something different just seeing that traction she got behind an album that went to number 20 was enough to get the camera out and to start shooting a couple of shorts for youtube and instagram and um and you know getting back into doing my own stuff again i think really so yeah yeah i came across it was, it was interesting actually seeing the, the name come up yeah because obviously you put that in 
in your kind of Instagram post earlier and seeing that name came up because I've been following her for well, a fair while now. I, mm. I couldn't say exactly when, but it's a it's a fair while. And yeah, I say it's. I'm not. I, I like the music, but I'm not sure that it is my sort of music. But and I'm not a musician at all in any sense of the word. I, I own a guitar. I, couldn't, I can't play it. But I, I do own one. Um, but it, yeah, it's interesting. She does lay her soul on out on the line for everyone to see. Almost yeah. and it, the thought process that she goes through. I I really do enjoy watching and listening to her videos. And they do give sort of real food food for thought. Yeah. Um, and just I mean, like you say, that to get an album to the main album charts without a manager without a management company without a, a, a record company just through hard work slog you know it's it's good it's good to see and it's good to see that kind of you know let's let's remove the let's remove some of the middle people from the kind of sort of the system to so that actually the kind mm. of creators get a fair wage yeah yeah absolutely yeah no, get, get a good handle on the profit but yeah definitely recommend um they're the other they're the, uh what well, we haven't i have mentioned before on here and I, th I, th I think actually i may have found laura through um is mary spender mm. yeah i mean I, I i i really i love mary spender's music i, I find that much more so my style it's it's slightly different to laura's um but again, some of her videos are kind of you know, laying out kind of you know, on the sort of yeah, you know, this is what I've been doing and this is why I've been doing it and this is where I've been struggling and yeah, you know, this is what I've done to overcome that struggle. I find that quite sort of inspiring. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I think the thing for me really is just kind of listening to a, a number of her tips around how to how to gain traction around your product your your creative output really you know it, it's had me looking at my my own website strawbite.com again and you know people have been gladly providing their email address to a newsletter that you know i actually haven't really serviced for quite some time to be honest and thinking back to um when i was a little bit more active you know i would be posting quietly to that list anything new that I was doing in the workshop and the feedback that I would be getting from that list alone, even though at the time it was probably only two to 300 people perhaps on it, uh, was, was invaluable really. Um, and I was rather shocked actually that I've got over 1400 people on that list now that I haven't really cool. communicated with in the last six months. So, um, you know, so I've got some time off my day job um, in a week or two and the intent really of, of that time whilst I'm away relaxing in Cornwall really is to have a long hard think about you know and perhaps employing some of these strategies a little bit more you know and not not too much I mean I don't want you know crazy amounts of growth in either interest in in my you know YouTube or Instagram oh, that would be nice obviously but you know with 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 any success right you know you've, there's a sort of downside and actually I'm mm -hmm. quite um, committed to my my day job career for the next three or four years probably till I can get closer to early retirement maybe um 
but but certainly um, not uh, leaving um, opportunities on the table is something that I'm I'm keen to sort mm. of um, to do. And actually, you know, just hearing somebody that you know through lockdown recorded an album with somebody from a band that everybody knows, and then suddenly, you know, they have a big success, yeah. um, and it's it's off the back of a sort of well thought through campaign-like strategy of, of getting the content out to people that want to listen to it and maybe buy it. And I think for me, probably anybody else that's, you know, creating stuff in the weekends for their, you know, for themselves or their family or maybe to take to craft fairs, that sort of thing, really, you know, having a sort of mindset about, you know, um, exploiting people that know you uh, to some extent, really, and uh, say exploiting people that know you that sounds quite strong, doesn't it? Really, but you know what I mean. <laughs> Taking people that know you and essentially just telling them what you're doing, and then either getting the feedback about it, good or bad, or then taking the opportunities that arise from that. I think really is you know advice that I would give anybody, to be honest. Um, you know, most of what I've seen as success in the last few years, really around uh, the wayside jig that everybody kind of talks about still. Don't know why. It must be useful to somebody. Um, uh, and, and all of that really has just come from sort of good word of mouth and really just being mindful of the fact that, you know, people showing an interest service them simply yeah. and then that interest then grows into something which could, you know, as far as the tax man's concerned, look like a fairly decent business, really. So, um, so, so you know, it's, it, it, as I say, I, I'm, I'm not keen on, on, on making everything that I'm doing kind of super spectacularly successful. Because I'm not quite ready giving up my my day job in technology risk, um, but nevertheless, it is um, uh, uh, I, I, you know if, if if you enjoy doing it and you get pleasure from you know making stuff for other people, really, then I think you know some advice there I think is really worth following. Well, I think that one just about kind of the the email list, isn't it? Yeah, I mean I've, I've heard this now so many times. You know, Instagram could disappear tomorrow. Facebook could mm. disappear tomorrow. Twitter could disappear yesterday. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's it's if we if you, if as a content creator you rely on those, as most of us do who produce content, to share what you're doing, particularly if it's for the purposes perhaps of bringing in money. You know, whether it's just a yeah a little bit of pocket money, whether it's a a, a good sized business that's you know gonna get the tax man interested um if you haven't got that email list you're at the whim of a few billionaires yeah absolutely your entire sort of content and it, i think and one of the things that laura i think has mentioned is that uh, kevin kelly's idea of a thousand true fans yeah. I mean, Mary Spender has talked about it a few times, and a thousand is just—it it doesn't have to be a thousand. It can be less if if, if you're doing well enough. It could be more if um, if that's what's needed. But kind of just having that kind of core audience of people who are interested in whatever it is you do, whether it's making music, whether it's making jigs for um, or attachments for sort of track saws. Uh, whether it's making videos, but having that kind of ability to kind of go, I want to tell these people something. I'm not going to be reliant on a an, an algorithm, 
that is you're pushing mm. particular things just because it's pushing particular things. Yeah. Yeah, it's I mean, it's I mean how many of our friends have, have been, you know, affected by that recently of, you know, a, a change in the algorithm and everyone's losing half their engagement or things like that, you know. Yes, it's um yeah, I've I've I I, I see it a lot on uh, quite a few channels that I follow that have um that that are sort of perhaps outside the maker space really um you know it seems to be a sort of universal sort of comment really you know i get to mm. see their content because i seek it out but you know they are sometimes struggling with the algorithm sort of dropping dropping their recommendations really um and i, I, I you know it's not not that um i think that these big corporations necessarily owe anybody a living right directly the end of the day they are kind of a, a platform that sort of facilitates you know the, the 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 creator um viewer kind of relationship to some extent however you know when you sort of um take a look inside youtube for example and you know through their creator insider programs and stuff and they're constantly talking about experiments that they're running <laughs> it kind of makes you think that you know whilst they're being careful Right to not disenfranchise any one community, whether it's the viewer or the the creator. Um, you know they are tinkering with it, and that yeah. has consequences, really. Um, but at the same time, you know um, I've got some shocking videos on my channel, really, that I wouldn't even watch now, to be honest. Um, and I and I think at the end of the day, you know, it, it is good engaging content, really, that is the starting point, really. And absolutely, um, yeah. And, and and whilst I've only done 77 videos for YouTube, for example, which isn't that very many at all. And, you know, I've had long periods of having lost complete interest in doing anything at all, let alone anything good on YouTube. Um, uh, it, it, it must be really hard and challenging to keep something going week after week, um, month after month with good engaging content, really. And fashions change, right? You know, at the mm. end of the day, yeah. Um, there's all these, you know, newer guys coming to the platform, really, with their own ideas. And some of them are going to gain traction quickly. Some of them are not. Um, and it's, it, is, it is an interesting space to be in, really. Um, well, I think the thing that a lot of people f might forget about these kind of things, though, is that, like, Google and... Of course, YouTube being an extension of Google in that sense, their entire platform is, they're an advertising company. They're, they're not a search engine. They're not a video platform. They are, their existence is purely to sell ads. It yeah. happens to be that they are the most common search engine and the most common video platform. So their, their whole reason for being is not to make sure that you get the content you want to see. It's to make sure that you get fed the ads that they want to feed you. So while you know it would be lovely to to think, you know, yes, Google will listen to us, and you know if we if we curate our own uh, stream of what we want to watch on YouTube, that will be succinct and, and standard. You know, uh, moving forward, it's just not the case because they want to feed more people more ads, so that there is always going to be that 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 change that increases. You know, kind of uh, that diversity of, of yeah. their ad revenue, and that's been a thing for forever, isn't it? Right. I remember a yeah. quote from Douglas Adams 
um, years and years and years ago where he was talking about ITV not being in the business of making TV programs because they're in the business of selling advertising. Yeah, um, They just use um, uh, TV. And this was long before the internet was even ever dreamt of. Um, they use TV uh, programs to fill the gaps between the adverts. Um, absolutely, yeah. And well, it's to capture the attention, isn't it? It's yeah, yeah. Their, yes, it their methodology is to capture people's attention and to keep the attention of people on their channel or their mm -hmm. particular social media. That's the kind of aim, and anything that keeps eyes on that media form is is always going to be is always going to be promoted and pushed. Yeah, exactly. So um, yeah, so uh, you know. I, I, I couldn't wait to monetize my channel, really, to be honest. I, I didn't think twice about just kind of hopping on on that. But the only thing that was really quite irritating was that when I started my channel, they literally moved the goalposts after my <laughs> after my first video really came within sort of 90 percent of the, um, uh, the the YouTube partner program entry criteria. And then suddenly I needed 400 um, watch hours of um, uh, of, of watch time and um, and a thousand subscribers, and I think I had 150 at the time, which I thought was pretty decent, and uh, just couldn't un couldn't figure out where the the other 850 were going to come from. To be honest, you know, yeah. who were they? I've run out of friends for a start. <laughs> There's nobody at work I can tell. Not that they're interested anymore. They've watched a couple and probably unsubscribed. Yeah, so. But it's interesting, really. I, I, you know, I've not really had a particular plan around my channel. It was always about trying to give back, you know, things that I knew that other people or knew how to do or I'd looked up or I'd, you know, because YouTube is the biggest search engine short of Google, really. You know, so yeah. when yeah. it came to um, insulating a single brick garage and trying to find the best way to do it, I was all over um youtube first and really found absolutely nothing that was useful enough lots mm -hmm. of people doing stuff that even i thought was looked a bit dodgy to be honest and probably wasn't good advice and then sort of set about really trying to do it properly by kind of approaching insulation manufacturers and once i'd got hold of a couple of them kingspan i think was the most useful company that i approached it quickly dawned on me that the technique that they were encouraging me to follow wasn't something that I'd seen anywhere over YouTube before, mm. which was to sort of batten out the inside of the wall and then apply, you know, PIR insulation to the inside and skin it with something or alternatively use insulated plasterboard, which is how I started. Um, and yeah, and then the video idea came from that. And, you know, 75,000 views later, it's still going strong. People are always seemingly interested in insulating their garages not for workshops these days i might add it's for um uh extra bedrooms games rooms offices gyms um that's that's the latest comment today i think really with somebody looking to turn their their garage in a gym i live on a new build estate um which i go you know which was the reason why I, it was so easy to do in in my case right you know it's a brand new garage right there's no mm previous occupant to sort of have to sort of you know clear his kind of bad um bad uh material choices um no wall anchors that you can't get out that sort of thing um, four different types of screw yeah yeah exactly so um 
So round our way, um, you know, it's all gyms, pelotons, yoga studios, and um, hairdressing salons. Um, uh, it, uh, and I've had all of them get in touch and ask for advice. Um, during lockdown, um, I think people just assumed I was furloughed, not thinking that I was working for a, one of those organizations that didn't get to stop work. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, I had dozens of offers to go and quietly um you know do their garage for them not and and oddly enough you know they thought i would just chuck it all in the back of the van and drive 400 miles to do it in most cases as well so <laughs> but, um, but um i mean that that project was was um now what further nearly four years ago we've been in this house for five years now so that was the second year that we we, we did the um installation project so I'm I'm really surprised at the longevity of that video. Um, it's evergreen. It's evergreen. It's it's going to keep. It, it is. Yeah. While absolutely. there are people with single garages that are you know single brick and uninsulated, yeah, it's going to. It's always going to be seen. That'll yeah. keep going. And I, and I've been working quietly over the last few months, really, on doing some follow-ups to it, really, because, um, you know, there's a couple of people that I I can't think of the guy's name off the top of my head now um but you know there's a couple of youtube channels that have done a pretty decent job of explaining blow by blow not just what they did but all of the decisions leading to it um mm. you know, somebody um like um uh, charlie di white for example um he does a pretty good job i think really of kind of setting out his stall you know clearly in most cases right any diyer can just tackle a job one way you know you don't mm. get to do it twice that's mm. the, the key thing, really. But he does a pretty good job of setting out his decision thing. And that was something that yeah, I, I never like that. really bothered doing in the video. I just filmed what I did, put it up, and people have kind of followed it. But, you know, that's not the only way of achieving the same outcome. For me, the constraint was the fact that my garage was only three metres wide. And every centimetre I took off the inside wall to put the insulation in was less space for tools and making to take place in. Yeah. And I was moving from a... Um, a wooden summer house that was three and a half meters by two meters and i didn't want to get left that. with just that space yeah. in a very warm and cozy box that had been done to, to building regs right so there were some shortcuts taken really in terms of the thickness of the insulation but of course i checked with building control about what the rules were as it wasn't going to be a space ever used for sleeping and it was never going to be heated then fund mm -hmm. fundamentally um you know i could really get away with anything the other thing that I did was um, was very mindful of the fact that um, where my parents live um, in Dunstable, it was an estate built in the 1960s and just about every semi-detached or link detached house now has taken their garage and converted it into a living room. And this was something that was happening in the 80s and 90s when I was a kid. The thing for me, uh, having gone into those spaces really, is, is that it always feels like a converted garage feels like a converted garage it's not a room of a proportion that makes it feel like a living room or a dining room or an office mm -hmm. or whatever um and so i was really very keen when i was kind of um doing my garage conversion to a workshop to leave it looking like a garage from the street because the how it the garage complements the house and i didn't actually particularly want to give away there was something more interesting going on inside yeah. it than, than, than yeah. a car um 
but uh you know for the for, for two and a half years i think we stuck with the notion that you know if if uh the planners turned up or whatever you know some uh, complaint was made i could quickly move the tools to the back of the garage and park a car in it and say look it's a garage clear off yeah um but that's yeah. that's changed more recently i i need wall space that's my big challenge at the moment right so um I've replaced the up and over door with a roller shutter and I've half blocked off that space in front of the door to give me a little bit more wall space. That's uh, some stuff that I videoed that I'm busy trying to edit and get out as videos. But um, yeah, I mean, what, I did make one mistake. I, I did, I, the one, one of the things that I did make a note of before coming on really was that um, in that series of videos, I did the walls, I did the roof, and I replaced the floor, well, put a vinyl floor down, and all of those videos performed quite nicely in the first year. But I had a professional roofer be very, I mean, you know, you get rude comments every time you put something up on, on YouTube, right? Yep. Uh, but this guy wasn't just rude, he was actually Bob on right as well. So he <laughs> called me a hapless amateur or some, some ridiculous comment. Um, told me that there was no way I should be showing people how to insulate the roof space of a garage that way. Um, and uh, pointed out um, that uh, the thing that I hadn't considered was, um, and I, I always get this phrase wrong, interstitch, it's condensation that forms inside insulation. It's a term for it, yeah. interstitial yeah. condensation, I think is this phrase. Um, and the, because I kind of made it up as I was going along, and that's the truth of the matter, I put one layer of insulation in and thought the job was done. Mm. And then I had a load of insulation left and I thought well, I could do a second layer. I'll go and do that. So battened out underneath the second layer and put the second layer up with an air gap between it. And, you know, that is inviting apparently um, moisture to condensate on the inside in that, in that gap between the two layers and rot your roof till your roof falls in and kills you. That's mm. essentially the um, allegation made by the roofer. Um, and I think he was desperately keen for that to happen as well, just to prove him right too. <laughs> um, so I've, I, I took that video down, and it's and it's it's honestly taking taking me. Um, so that that project, uh, just doing the roof, took me three and a half weeks of me being constantly up a ladder, sweating my proverbials off, really in the roof space in the middle of summer, trying to get this insulation up. Um, but it's taken two and a half years of slowly going around and correcting the mistake. So I'm just at the stage now where I can perhaps revisit that whole project and start to do it again. Um, and one of the challenges, like I said, is that I've already done it. So I'm going to be talking about it after the fact. I've not videoed half of the fixing because there's only so much standing up a ladder that any one yeah. person can watch. Really, 10 minutes of it would be enough for most people. I want to try and keep that. <laughs> That down to maybe a 20 second clip of me just replacing some uh, insulation um but um but yeah so um so i've come up with a clever wheeze really it brings me on to the other thing the films of wes anderson so i don't know if you watch much wes, wes anderson uh, anderson i'm not i i not he's not someone that i kind of i mean i'm hopeless at remembering kind of names of directors and things like that anyway but there's been a lot of people on instagram lately doing kind of reels in the in the manner of wes anderson yeah there's a whole whole genre that's accident, yeah. accidentally wes 
I think yeah. is what it's called, where, it's where people take photographs that have, um, have, have, have accidentally captured the sort of, you know, the shots that Wes Anderson tends to look in his films. But um, now the reason for mentioning it is the fact that um, as a storytelling device, Wes Anderson use, uses scale models in his films to explain things like in um, uh, the um, Steve Sisu film um, with... Oh, I can't think he's in it now, to be honest. But anyway, it's the sort of submarine one. There's a model of a submarine that shows how the submarine is laid out. Um, and in the Grand Budapest Hotel, there's a model of the hotel that kind of explains how the hotel works. Mm. So I was watching um, Grand Budapest Hotel um, last year, and I thought, hang on a sec, right? I've insulated my workshop one way, and that's the only way that workshop's going to ever get insulated. I'd have to move to do it again somewhere else. Um, and that's not happening anytime soon. And I know my other half's watching this upstairs, so um, she'll be rest assured um, that we're not moving anytime soon to a bigger workshop. Because uh, it won't be a bigger house. It'll be a smaller house, bigger <laughs> workshop. That's what I've got in mind. Um, but yes, having watched that uh, grand, I, I suddenly thought, actually, if I built a scale model of my workshop, I can insulate that as many ways as I like, really, just doing it as a one-tenth scale model. So that's what yeah. I've done. And I've been busy working out now how to film it um, with GoPros and other small um, desktop cameras, like webcams, for example, um, nice. to try and get shots that mirror the shots that I... And I know this sounds like overly complex, really, but I think it would be quite interesting. I think it sounds really cool, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, the, the, the task of... Inst so I, I can show in real life what I did, and then in the pretend model workshop, give you the sort of three or four options that I considered that I discounted and actually show you in physical form the reason why those options don't work. You know, in particular, you know, losing too much space on the inside. Yeah, I think as well that that's that would also give you an opportunity to perhaps test that roofer's theory as well. If you've got, you know, I don't know, like a, a, a tea light and a spoonful of water or something to yeah, yeah, create lovely. some moisture in, in there and see how it behaves differently, you know, yeah, have a bit of the scientific yeah. method on it. Exactly. So so that's what I've been working on lately is really just trying to complete that scale model, really. I, it seems like some sort of fool's errand at the moment, right, because I feel like I can't start on finally wrapping up these kind of follow-on videos to that installation workshop. Um, series that I did, including the reissued director's cut, if you like, of the uh, roofing installation. <laughs> DVD commentary on the end. Absolutely, where we can change the ending so it's not a complete <laughs> disaster. Um, Hand shot first. <laughs> exactly. So, um, so yeah, but but it's it's got me interested um, again in you know making um, models on trays as a kid was was just what we did in our household growing up. Mm. You know, my dad was a um, carpenter and joiner and his father was in the Royal Engineers and was a, um, a maintenance guy um, at Lang's headquarters in Boreham Wood, I think it was, or certainly near Stanmore, which is where my grand grandfather lived. Um, and they had hobbies galore between them, everything from making um, chuck gliders, um, you know, out of balsa wood and then doping um, tissue paper 
to form the wings oh. through to gluing airfix kits together. I mean, my ceiling as a kid was just full of airfix kits um, suspended on fishing wire from, um, and you know, uh, I mean, the great thing about that was my, my granddad was prolific. He used to make them literally every month and bring them around for me and my brothers. Um, mm. And there's only so much room on the ceiling of a small um, bedroom that you share with your brother growing up. Um, so, you know, when you run out of room, you take them down and then blow them up in the back garden with fireworks or, you know, some <laughs> other crazy stunt. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and, and that kind of caught on, really. And when I think back, um, somebody asked me at work the other day about, you know, they, they were talking about their children um, getting into kind of resistive materials at school and then coming home from school kind of wanting to do it at home. And then they were being obsessed with the sharpness of saws and knives and so on. And it got me thinking, really, that, you know, I was trimming the sprues off of um, airfix kits um, with a scalpel, probably age nine, mm. you know, not with my parents permission per se they just happened to be in a little cigar box in the back of the dining room and you'd go and just and away you go um and i just think you know going back to all of that really making models and and having that crafting thing was just something i grew up with really so um you know putting this scale model of my workshop together has just been a joy to be honest really you know cutting everything out getting it to scale working out what the proportions need to be you're not doing it with matchsticks then. Sorry? You're not doing it with matchsticks then. No, no. But that was something that I was into <laughs> the same, yeah. as a kid. Uh, matchsticks, making carts out of um, uh, clothes pegs that you broke up, took the spring out, and then yeah. you had those kind of funny shapes that would make wheels. That was another thing. Uh, string pictures. You remember yeah. those? You know, where you bang the nails into a bit of, um, I don't know what it was back then, plywood perhaps covered in cloth and then string stuff yeah did all of that macrame I could yeah talked to knit by my aunt so and and you know loved um needlework at school i just thought you know all of my, my middle school was great we, we had um, a sort of rotation between pottery needlework cooking and woodwork and nice. literally every term you swapped so you did six weeks or every half term you did six weeks of one swap to the other uh, and that continued for the four years that I was at Priory Middle School in Dunstable, and I absolutely loved it. You know, to the point whereby I can I can sew pretty well, to be honest. I think, even as a uh, as a grown up, it's such a useful skill to have as well, though. And I think, it, yeah. especially for for people who look like us three, you know, it, it's one of those skills that we should have. You know, and I think it's it's uh, it's often seen as one of those you know kind of like you either get the the folks who are like quite happily you know stitch themselves back together but can't put a button back on their shirt yes or the ones who are you know kind of oh, why, why why should i do that you know just think well, yeah normally with a optimistic <laughs> yeah note exactly. after it yeah. yeah yeah i mean i'm fascinated with all of that i i love learning new techniques that's mm. what's got me into 3d printing that's got me that got me a CNC. I've got a laser cutter now, like a proper CO2 one, not one of these uh, um, diode ones that will choke you to death in your workshop. Um, uh, and blind you, because they're not blind you. Closures. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, all of these techniques that I've hoovered up just allow me to sort of, you know, create things that come to mind now. I think that's the, 
the power of it all. Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah, years ago, um, I used to be quite heavily involved in uh, a sailing club, and um, and they had a problem whereby the um, flags that they used to mark the boys when they were doing dinghy racing um, used to fade really very quickly in the in the light. And, and the reason being is that they kind of made it out of um, uh, spinnaker material. It's very light weight uh, nylon so there's not much stuff to it it's dead thin and yeah. whilst it's color fast you know a material that thin is just going to degrade in uv light really quickly so whilst you can get some really yeah. bright spinnaker colors you know they would be flat boring pink shapes after a season's worth of use um and i said oh you know um i'm sure there's a there's a um a solution here and i went away and had a thought and thought well you don't see high vis jackets fade that much in uv light really they seem to be quite yeah. quite stable yeah. Yeah. um so I, I got a couple of extra large uv um uh, extra large um uh, high-vis jackets got a um, seam ripper ripped all the seams just to leave me with panels you know the back panel mostly um mm -hmm. and i also took off the um the mirror uh, you know the reflective strips as well yeah and then made up 14 flags for the sailing club out of high-vis vests. And I think they lasted like nine or ten years before they were they were finally oh, retired. Um, and, uh, you know, again, it, you know, the fact that I could see uh, a purpose of the, just the material mm -hmm. alone. And I could, I'd, I'd been taught as a youngster how to undo mistakes, really, more than anything, to be honest, and to rip all these seams... Get the material sew it together come up with these kind of funky flags um and you know and and that that was probably late on in my adulthood and, and kind of was probably the catalyst to get me connected back into making i think that was probably one of the first things where i thought you know i could create something that would be useful to someone else from yeah. just a sort of a leap of imagination i suppose really more than anything seeing the the value of the the back of a hive's vest right you know? <laughs> <laughs> and interestingly actually hive's vest and this is another thing that i've learned really is that you know um you know people complain about raw materials really and i've made a couple of videos on this already so when i made my drill stand right, i went out to try and get some timber to make um, a stand for a fairly heavy uh, 13 inch uh, pillar drill i mean you know it needs two people to lift it off the ground and put it on anything right and I was really thinking that I'd, I'd need to get some solid bits of wood to make the legs, a nice big thick bit of timber to act as the top and stuff. And I went and priced it up and um, and really found that actually it was going to probably cost about 40 or 50 quid in materials alone to make the thing that I had in my head, which was kind of the bare minimum to stop the thing from falling and hitting the ground as the way I saw it. And then I just happened to be in Ikea, not the fav not a favourite haunt of a maker, by the way, my Ikea. But, but what was astonishing is that their, vet, their Beckfam kitchen island, which is made out of laminated beach um, and in, in, in sectional sizes, which are pretty decent. I mean, you know, they were bigger than this, this cross-sectional area of the timbers that I was looking to, to make my legs out of. Um, but the whole thing, I think, was 49 quid, 10 quid short of the budget that i'd priced up to get my local timber yard to sort of um 
you know, give me the material. And and I, and I was maybe I could have done it in constructional timber, clearly. But I mean, I wanted to make something that felt like a bit of furniture because I thought that was well mm. within my capabilities. Yeah. And I wanted to stretch myself in terms of doing all the joinery. But actually, when I when it came down to it, the money was a bit scarce. And I just thought, sod it, I'm just going to go and buy and hack uh, an IKEA um, device. But it was actually uh, uh, an IKEA um, kitchen island. But it was actually that... Um, that lesson from making the flags because I went out to get the material that they make high-vis vests from from a, um, a fabric supplier and mm. um, by the yard basically and for what I needed I think it was going to cost me um, I think about 35 quid for a couple of yards of this material it's about a yard and a half wide um, but uh, nine high-vis vests came in at under 10 quid so the material <laughs> made into a high-vis vest turns out with a vest costing less than the material used to make it now i guess there is a economy of scale operating there yes right? yeah mm. and that you know the fabric supplier that's got a roll of high-vis material in his inventory probably doesn't have many people like me coming along asking for it so it's priced <laughs> accordingly but yeah. even so you know that's really got me looking at the world ever since really slightly differently and it's mm -hmm. why I like, you know, channels like um, Keith Brown's, for example, Rag and Bone Brown, you know, which is all about reuse and recycling and stuff like that, is that people see in other materials, um, uh, you know, not the thing, but the underlying stuff. Yeah. Um, and, going, and going back to sailing, I mean, centerboards on older classic dinghies like uh, Enterprises and um, Mirror Dinghies. Um, you remember Mirror Dinghies? Um, uh, or the name I've, I've never been a sailor but i'm aware no, they built they built one on nationwide in the um in the early 80s <laughs> that's that's where i can remember it from that's what kind of got me into sailing in the first place i think that and swallows and amazons but um but um yeah so all of those classic dinghies were made with some pretty exotic materials which were commonplace in the 60s and 70s when dinghy sailing kind of had its heyday um and I've got still got some boat building friends that will go out and buy um, 1920s, 1930s dining tables to get the teak and mahogany out of the table to make centerboards and rudder blades for classic dinghies. Um, and that, 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 again, is kind of a mindset that's kind of stuck me, with me, really. I, I, see, I see raw materials in all sorts of stuff, to be honest. I've, I've become a little bit of a, um, a magpie terms of, of of getting stuff into the workshop to, to kind of reuse in that way yeah yeah you have to be careful otherwise you end up like me with kind of a shed full of stuff mm. to potentially use but you can't actually get in there to find all the stuff because it's a bit too full yes <laughs> yes um I've, I've i was in the workshop this afternoon and um i've got a box i don't know it's 30 centimeters by 40 centimeters a foot uh, 30 centimeters deep full of casters um you know I, I found my stash of casters the other day as well and some from from chairs and some from something else and uh it was it was just i was looking for some um wood glue the other week um i, I remember buying some of that um tight bond thick and quick and i and i was doing something that i just needed a very quick glue up because i was just wanting to get the thing done that day rather than having to 
clamp it up, leave it overnight, and come back to it the following day. So I went hunting for this thing, and literally everything I pulled off the shelf in the workshop was a random bag of stuff. So, um, you know, I found the glue in the end and finished that little task that day, but I've probably spent the last two weeks really kind of looking in all the dark places of my workshop now. And one of the things that I've got an abundance of is casters. I've literally got probably <laughs> 60 or 70 individual wheels <laughs> and feet that I've kind of robbed off of furniture um, yeah. and you know, the stuff that you get left over once you put a set of shelves together for your house. Mm -hmm. um, so I've had a really good sort out, to be honest. I've got like a, a, um, a wheelie bin full of stuff that's going to go off recycling all of this. Uh, old screws that you know mm. are in odd sizes. I remember thinking um, a while back. Um, I don't know whether you ever had this right. You kind of take a screw out of something and you think, "Oh, that looks interesting." You know, maybe it's a pan head or um, a bugle head screw, <laughs> and you think, "Oh, that's interesting. I'll I'll keep that." And you throw it into your screw box, and sure enough, yeah, you can think of a use for it, but you want four. You only ever saved one. So no. you end up buying four because <laughs> you you can't get three you can't get three and you end up with this perpetual screw, which is just you know the ghost of yeah. an idea really. It's that's all it is in the end. I, uh, I've talked about it on the podcast before, but I did the same thing. I I I dismantled something and saw these. There was I think maybe three or four of these screws. So, oh, that's that's perfect for a lot of the kind of. A lot of the time when I'm trying to do bits of 3D printing or trying to fix something thin to something thick, to, you know, perfect. You know, I, I want to get a set of those screws. Finally track down what they actually were. And they, you can only buy them for about 56 quid for a thousand at a time. Mm. So I want maybe a box of 100 to last me for the next five years. You know, I don't need to spend that amount of money on that quantity of screws but i can every now and then I'll just, it'll just reappear just like one or two of them that i've put in strategic places to remind me down the line yeah yeah and, I, and to be honest i'm the worst person to be um influenced by something you see on youtube as well so <laughs> a couple of years ago um i'd watched a, a history guy um video about the history of screws and he was talking nice. about you know the sort of dust down they had in the US between Phillips and, and Henry in, in Canada in terms of how to put a vehicle together and it kind of ended up with the Phillips head standard and the Henry screw head being kind of pitching head to head with car manufacturers in North America and stuff. Anyway, after having watched that, right, just about every uh, YouTuber that's got an axe to grind about what's their favourite screw head type <laughs> kind of started to come up and so talks head screws kind of leapt into into my um youtube viewing and then i suddenly thought hey there, there's there's an approach to screws that's going to solve all of my problems and of course it doesn't it just multiplies them because you end up with the same um you know amount of screws in the same sizes that you had as posi drive but now in yep. talks head screws and then basically what I realized is that the um, the selection process is really whatever bits in your in your um, impact driver. In the driver, yeah. Yeah. 
So, you know, if I've got a Philips uh, um, PosiDrive bit in my impact driver, then I'm going to be looking for PosiDrive screws, right? I'm not going to be looking for the Torx 20 uh, um, bit to put in there. And, cause, and then in the end, I just thought, you know what, I'm going to have to sort of rationalize everything. So I've kind of now got it boiled down to a set number of sizes in mm -hmm. a set number of um, uh, head sizes, you know, posi yeah. drive two and threes mostly. Um, yeah. And then that's it. Um, no so drivers. I've gone the other way. I, I, I've, if I need a black screw, then I know I need number two Phillips bit because that's the drywall screws. And that's purely for aesthetics. Uh, if I need short but kind of like washer head um, screws, then it's going to be a num uh, number two posi because they're the only decent ones that you can get that are, you know, uh, half inch or three quarter, you know, kind of uh, number eight, number 10 for like uh, decorative purposes again. Absolutely everything else is talks. Oh, wow. My other half uses my tools probably just as much as I do. Um, and talks so much better for uh, someone to be putting something together in like up hanging underneath something, trying to put a, a, a stupid fastener in a stupid place, kind of thing. Or uh, if like she's building, she's built a couple of sheds and things and extensions to bits and bobs and bits of furniture and things. And she's so much more comfortable just using like impact driver and talks bit. If the bit fits, then you know it works great. So it's just got a selection of all the torque sizes, yeah. And then it's just it's really easy that you don't have any of the because um, there's no none of the cam out, so you don't need to have as much force on the um, on the driver. That's that's purely the only reason for, for switching everything to torques. Yeah, yeah. I, I just didn't become a fan well enough. You know, I I, I can see it ticks all the boxes. Um, you know, has some other advantages as well, talks as well, because you know, if you can't find your talks bit, you can stick a hex bit in or an Allen key and yeah. get it just about tight with that. Um, or at worst, just a straight bit, <laughs> a straight bit, exactly. Um, but no, it never really sort of worked. Um, but uh, I mean, it, it, I, I, like I say, I've, I've just been lately just trying to sort of rationalize stuff in the workshop now, think a little bit more. Um, like, you know, like my dad did. I mean, he was a jobbing carpenter and joiner. You know, he didn't have a mm. screw in every size imaginable kicking around in the garage. You know, um, he kind of knew what screws he used the most and then stuck with those. And then, you know, yeah. for everything else, you ground the tip off a screw to make it shorter and drill the pilot <laughs> hole, you know. That was that was kind of his mindset, and I've I've kind of gone with that a little bit lately because I mean it's not like you know my interest, um, my increasing interest in making, if you like, has resulted in my workshop every time I go out in it getting you know one square meter bigger just because I'm more enthusiastic to get out there and make stuff. Um, you know, it's a finite size, and I've literally filled all the little um, sortine uh, sortimo kind of boxes mm -hmm. now with. With stuff, I'm just now having to sort of dial that back a bit, really, and also, you know, stop um, uh, obsessively trawling Amazon 
for for parts as well. <laughs> Try and make it's the recommendations down the bottom as well. When you buy one thing and then yeah. you go, oh, get oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And the, and then the worst um, store is Sourcing Map on. Um, so Sourcing Map do kind of screws and other fixtures, um, and you know they're not the quality is not great, but it's not you know not bad because they've got like everything you can think of. Like I bought some mm. um, washer head um, hex type um screws to 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 make as part of a kit of um a table saw pointers that i kind yeah. of did a video about the other week um so i ordered a whole bunch of those from amazon just because they could come the next day and people were looking to to place orders um but yeah as soon as sourcing map kind of know who you are then their entire back catalog of stuff <laughs> is revealed to you and you know it's 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 a hard thing to sort of say yeah, no but a few things from them and the other one that i tend to buy a lot of my fasteners from is uh bolt base uh on ebay yeah um they've got their own website as well which is uh equally as dangerous but for things like m3 m4 kind of uh weird little screws for 3d printing stuff they're phenomenal because they've got absolutely everything in all the really weird sizes you know ordering like m2 and m2 and a half for tiny 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 little projects and things yeah yeah super super small fasteners i mean i i, I know that there's you know in terms of stuff that you'd end up having to assemble at home right you know because everything now comes in a rectangular box regardless of it's, it's real world dimensions right so mm. some assembly required is a is a mindset that we have to get into in modern life, right? If you can't manage that, then you might as well give up, mm. really, to be honest. It's, it's, it's going to be a hard life for you if you can't put a set of shelves together. But I get really frustrated when, you know, I feel like some engineering considerations have been um, considered over and above the practicalities of trying to put the thing together in someone's house. I, I get so frustrated where you come to put something together and they supply you with um, like four different Allen keys that all look roughly the same sort of so if, like you say they might be um, two millimeter two and a half millimeter and three you know to my old eyes without my reading glasses on that's the same size as far as I'm concerned yeah and um, <laughs> and you know it, 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 it frustrates me to the point whereby actually on a couple of occasions I've half given up on mm. assembling something just because I'm tired of having to work out and find the m two and a half version of the thing because that's what's required and i appreciate that they've probably gone through fixings tables and bolts tables and you know all of these kind of guides on pre-stressing their nut and bolt joints and stuff to yeah uh, for the loads and stuff but you know come on you know these days a stainless steel m3 uh, nut and bolt providing it's you know physically going to fit in the Thing you're trying to build you know it's going to be almost as cheap as your m2 and a half nut and bolt yeah. and it's not going to leave me floundering around looking for that allen key that i had in my hand 10 minutes ago that i've just put down and can't find again mm -hmm. you know, so yeah yeah very much with you there so that that is i'll admit that is the downside of using torx fasteners everywhere is having to have the to 10 15 20 25 and 30 kind of in a in a pack together 
So you can do that kind of the test with the screw first, right? That's that's the one I need. Yeah, I do remember a few years ago. I mean, I, I trained as an engineer. I used to take apart computer systems when they used to fill, you know, large rooms mm -hmm. uh, and not do very much with no more than 25 users. Um, that's how I started in sort of engineering. And, um, you know, I remember having a set of Torx screwdrivers in my kit because a lot of the stuff that was coming over from the US, mm -hmm. um, you know, 20 megabyte drives that were, you know, the size of shoeboxes. Um, you know, they needed Torx heads to get the tops off so that you could calibrate the heads and all of that kind of stuff. And I remember um, when I quit that job, um, these tools kind of stuck with me kicking around the house. Um, uh, my my tumble dryer broke down and um, having logged to the call already, but not wishing to be without the tumble dryer for a while, what had happened was that the, the, the um, drain pipe had sort of come loose and was floating around in the back and it sort of worn through mm. as the drum was going around. So all it really needed was a bit of self-amalgamating tape around it just to patch it up until the fella could come out and do a proper repair on it. So I patched this thing up and I remember the um, the guy, I can't remember whether it was um, Bosch or Mealy or whatever it was, I can't remember the brand now, but the service engineer came out. He was absolutely agog that a homeowner had a Torx head screwdriver and could take his machine apart. <laughs> he seemed to, I think, take possession of every machine that Melee, whoever it was, had sold. Um, mm. And he was really quite offended to find my sort of bodge job inside the machine <laughs> and and pointed out to me that the reason why they used Torx head screwdrivers was to stop people like us from getting inside washing machines. And I had to point out, having come from a sort of computer manufacturing background that actually know the reason why they use Torx head screwdrivers is that when you've got a mechanical screwdriver in the factory there's no cam out and you can get these things in fast that's why they've yeah. chosen them it's got nothing to do with the fact that you want to keep the customers out of the back of your yeah you know, they, they can there's no security very very quickly calibrated to a set torque value exactly exactly from a, a, a very very fast install yeah, so we had this interesting conversation as he reluctantly replaced this pipe in the back of my tumble dryer. So, <laughs> and and when my my tumble dryer, we've got a tumble dryer. Can't remember what brand it is, now. but um, we had a, a similar thing of it, you know, kind of uh, erroring out, and you know, it was, it was a the same old story of you know having done you know uh, computer repairs for a couple of decades and things. It was. Of, you know, there's got to be some reason for it, and uh, apparently it was a, a very, very standard, common problem with this particular uh, thing. Once everything gets a little bit warm, it, there's a thermal cutout in the back. But because they know it's a, a problem, you literally spin the machine round. There's 13 Torx fasteners on the back. Takes the you just take the panel off, and there is a big red push to make button in the middle of the back panel. So you take you take the back panel off, you push the button, and then you put the back back on, tighten the screws back up, and that resets the whole machine. I know it's nuts. They it? know it's an issue. It's nuts. Um, I was very tempted to just mark out where it was and just drill a hole to be able to push the button from the outside, just to save me having to take the screws out. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's I would. Kind of funny. Yeah, but I mean, you know, that that I mean, when I learned. So I, I used to work for McDonnell Douglas, um, who at the time in the UK were largely renowned for making 
um, information systems. They bought several companies, a company called Microdata, and they were reseller for digital as well. So their fax systems were resold um, by McDonnell Douglas um, to hospitals and police forces and ambulance people and that sort of thing. Um, so, um, but, you know, I, I got trained on the bench um, initially to sort of repair stuff that was coming into back into the workshop from customer sites and send them back out. And um, yeah, again, it's a, a sort of lesson learned mindset thing, I think, really, is that, you know, about 90, 95% of all faults are caused by, um, you know, one or two common problems mm. on the stuff that I was repairing um, as an engineer. Um, it means no nothing to nobody these days, but McDonald Douglas used to have a, um, a terminal, uh, an RS-232 terminal called a P4. And I can tell you if that thing won't turn on, it's guaranteed to be CR-103, which was a 100 uh, microfarad capacitor on the um on the power supply board you replace that and you could and it visibly it was shot every time you open these things up it was the most stressed mm. component in there you just put it in with you replaced it with a slightly higher rated version and you probably get no trouble for the lifetime of that device <laughs> which of course back then right nobody foresaw you know the pc taking off when i got started in it you know, PCs were what people used to use to do Lotus one two three spreadsheets and nothing else. You didn't network them. God no. Um, That's what I started on. Yeah. Yeah. So Lotus terminals one, two, three, were, were, were the future, and smart terminals were just terminals that gave you the text in blue. Really, if I remember rightly, rather than green <laughs> or white. Um, and they had you know function keys that did things other than um, you know uh, put tabs in. When you were using a word processor, but, yeah. <laughs> but it was that, and that's kind of stuck with me. I'm always, I mean, I did a video where I repaired my um, uh, my planer. So I've got a, a Metabo um, uh, HC two sixty um, planer. It's 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 sold under a whole variety of brands. Record Power do it. I think it's the PT two sixty with um, Record Power, and um, and I remember putting that video up where. It, the thing was dead when I bought it. Well, actually, no, it wasn't. It was shown to me by the guy in his house working. I think he must have had his foot on something or his finger poked in something, right? Because it turned out one of the interlock switches was shot. Uh, and it took me probably about um, a couple of evenings, really, to sort of go through, you know, apply my sort of engineer's diagnostic kind of mindset, really go through and test everything one by one, take switches out, bench test them, put them back in and so on. Eventually, I found the fault made a video about replacing it and the video was really intended to show people how to fault find it wasn't about fixing my planer it was just a skill that i developed as a result of being a bench engineer for a computer company for so many years right so mm -hmm. i just thought that would be quite interesting and i remember the first few comments that i got from people is that you know you shouldn't be repairing your tools you know that's a dangerous machine that would have your hand off you know if you're not careful and what are you doing going in there with a the screwdriver and fixing it I just thought, well, for a start, it's mine. Yeah. Secondly, the, the spares are readily available, so it's not like I'm sort of, you know, having to break into NASA to steal parts to fix this thing. And, right and it's not yeah. like they've gone the extra mile and put security tugs or pin oh, tugs. Absolutely. <laughs> and you know, the bloody manual has a um, an exploded diagram parts of, list. Yeah. Of yeah, the entire thing with the parts list, right? So once I and and you know, and I, I did feel a bit. Uh, um, cheesed off 
about that particular comment really because i think you know it it, it it made me think that perhaps the world's turned and we've got a mindset of people now that think that something is useful whilst it's serviceable it's repairable so long as you've got a warranty with it and somebody can come in a brown coat and fix it for you mm-hmm. and then effectively it's scrap the Once minute the it breaks and it's it magic things. stick it in the bin yeah buy another one and um you know and i i'm i i i, I get really quite frustrated with stuff that breaks around the house in the workshop and stuff i want to be able to uh, repair it i expect to be able to repair it and get really frustrated when you know the right to repair is is taken away absolutely i I think that's one thing that um i found frustrations more and more of things like that you know trying to apply like you said like a diagnostic methodology to something and the downside of you know potted components that are stuck to their own will you know you, you can't get in and check and change things or you know the boards are completely you know conformally coated so you can't test anything properly or things like that and yeah you, you can't apply that rationale to something because what might look like uh, you know a, a failed capacity you can't you can't test it properly unless you start chiseling off epoxy and things like that and then you can get at it test it go oh, well that's actually yeah that's failed you replace the capacitor and then next thing something else on the board goes and you, you can't then diagnose the problem because there's some proprietary bit of stuff that you can't access or you can't diagnose or you can't that that's where it really starts to frustrate me yeah yeah i mean mean, these days it's just sort of power tools really um that i'm kind of fixing but i mean i've I've tried fixing an iphone and um and then decided that a 24 megapixel camera on the next model along was probably a better route (laughs) than trying to fix my crack screen um although i did have um and this is a sort of shout out to samsung so i used to have a galaxy note 20 i think it was whatever it was, um, a couple of years ago and i um dropped it outside screw fix um and broke the screen and um kind of booked a repair with them and i was absolutely staggered right back when i was a um, an, an engineer right you know getting a soldering iron out on site and fixing something really wasn't uncommon right and and mm. lots of customers um were quite okay with it really um despite the fact that it was still leaded solder back then so probably they probably wouldn't be quite as happy <laughs> with today's health and mine's uh, health and there was no heat proof mat either like you would expect yeah. to have on a soldering station these days um uh, so, 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 but the, this guy turns up in this little van and uh, it's all done in the back of the van. It's incredible. Mm. Oh, wow. Parked outside my house. He kind of gets out of the driver's seat, climbs in the back. It looks, it's a VW caddy, you know, a bit like the, um, uh, carav- um, the, the little sort of day van type setup. Mm, yeah. A little bench in the back and a couple of windows. And he sits there. He's got all the gear. He's got the UV light to cure the screen. Um, I was really very impressed, actually, to be honest. Now, 45 minutes outside my house, handed back um, a phone with a... And the other thing that was interesting was that they extended the warranty, not just on the screen, but on the whole phone by 12 months. 
Fantastic. Uh, which is not the same as what I got the last time I turned something into Apple and got that fixed. You know, you barely get six months on the repair there, to be honest. But um, <laughs> but I was, I, I, but it was it was the fact that it was taking place outside my house that this entire yeah. Samsung's entire repair business model now was about it being convenient for the customer and then having the engineer turn up at your house, sit in a van, and fix it for you. And it was a pretty wet day as well. So I mean, you know, you had the roof uh, rain on the roof. It's all properly set. It wasn't asking to bring a power lead in to yeah. take that back to the van. It was very cleverly done. And the thing is that, like you said, that that's partly the optics of it as well, is because yeah. you can you can see it's being done there and then. You know, you know, it's not being taken off to some wizard in a box somewhere who'll just yeah, yeah. Do, do some magic and bring it back. You can you can see the thing happening. You can see it's your phone that's coming back to you. It's not a swap out or stuff like that. Yeah, but there's, a, there's a lot of merit to that. But there's an interesting twist in my experience of this right to repair that I had on my list of things that I might talk about if it came up. So I will. Mm, yeah. Which is uh, brands. Brands don't actually want you to repair your thing with anything else or enhance it in any way, shape or form with anything else That's other not. than things that they make. Mm. Um, and one of the pitfalls um, uh, of selling on a platform like Etsy which I do, and I do a decent amount of business on Etsy each month, to be honest, and it's something that I wish to protect. Um, but um, so Etsy have a pretty strict, um, uh, they take no crap, basically, right? If you infringe any of their terms and conditions, you're off the platform. There's no comeback from it. It's not like YouTube where you get two strikes or three strikes and you're off. Um, if you infringe the um, rights of a brand, you, you're off straight away. Um, and this led to a little bit of a, a scare about six months ago for me and many other people like me that make accessories or tools. I mean, I make my guides. They're not strictly speaking for any one particular tool, but off the back of that, I've made the little things that block up the hole on a, a track saw. Right? So um, arbor hole covers. Um, but you have to be very careful about how you list those parts because the brand owner can um, call a strike on you if you imply in any way, shape, or form that the item is a Bosch part or a yeah. Festool part or whatever. So you have to be very careful about how you word these things. Um, and the thing that they really dislike is, um, and this is particularly the case in the 3D community, uh, 3D printing community as well, uh, the brands are now going into repositories like printables and um, what's the other one that I can't think of this? Thingiverse, right? And getting models pulled off of that for replacement parts for their tools. Um, mm. Because they're claiming that the copy of the part is infringing their intellectual property rights. Um, and that's that's a... And... Uh, um, is it Louis, Louis Rossman? Um, yeah. Has done a yeah. long rambling rant rec in the recent... He's good at those. Last, last few months, really, about brands exercising... Uh, their rights and where it makes no sense to me at all is where the product has been discontinued and the parts inventory that they once held has been exhausted that's where right. things really sort of irritate me slightly and fortunately I think you know mostly um, they kind of leave um, small fabricators alone really in terms of manufacturing non-OEM parts 
um, the tools. But you have to be so careful now when you set yourself up. So if you want to make, um, I don't know, you've got some sort of super whizzy idea about how to make um, a Bosch um, circular saw easier to use, um, cleaner, safer, it, better dust extraction because you've redesigned the dust port. Unless you put that up on um, your um, uh, sales channel as, um, I don't know, dust port for Bosch model number, right? Um, or compatible with, that's the better term, compatible mm. with Bosch part number, etc. Um, then, you know, uh, Bosch is, and I'm using Bosch as an example, not because they've called anybody out, but it's just because it's a big brand. But the, the lawyers, a big brand lawyer could look at that and turn around and say, well, you're trying to pass off the thing that you make as something that uh, would otherwise carry the Bosch logo and be sold mm. in, the, in a parts inventory somewhere. Um, and that's been um, uh, a, a concern for a lot of um, maker sellers, people that have got ideas about how to improve their tools um, and, you know, and, and to sort of enhance them. And and that's a little wor worrying, really. The flip side to that, and I have this problem and challenge myself, is that I design stuff that the world and his wife are more than willing to rip off the moment I let it see light of day on a social media platform or yeah. on a, on a um, sales channel like Etsy. Um, and, you know, I, it took me a little while to, to, to get over myself on that, really. I used to get really quite angry. Um, and I even made a video about how crap some of the copies of my um, track store guides were um, out of sheer frustration with the whole thing, really. But what I did, um, and this is something that actually I, I did want to recommend, right? So I don't know whether you knew this, but the British Library run a program for startups and it helps. Um, so it's uh, the BIPC um, is the scheme that they run. It's often run in local libraries near where you live. So it's available in Northamptonshire where I'm based and it's readily accessible in our local library. Um, but it's uh, lots of other counties, uh, county library services have picked up this scheme. And basically it's a sort of one-stop shop for people that want to start businesses um, mm -hmm. and people with intellectual property that they want to go and figure out how they can stop people from copying it really. Yeah. And it's a really yeah. useful service. So if you are in the a business of coming up with an idea and then trying to get somebody else to part money for it, part with their money for it, right? It's actually quite a, an interesting way of kind of thinking about what you're doing. And so the thing that I've learned, right, is that um, your idea is yours. You can protect it in a number of ways. You can protect the look, the design, how it looks. Mm. You can protect protect its innovation. That's what a patent is. Um, they're very expensive, and you lose patents just by not paying enough money to the patent office to maintain it as well. So that's yeah. that's a worry. Um, but the, um, the the best advice I got really was just just to sort of make something and start selling it. Right, and then at the end of the yeah. day, you can protect the thing that you've made. You get to name it once, um, and once you've named it, you can call that as call that as a trademark um, with TM. You can register that trademark and get your R in a circle, um, and you can protect your design rights. So you can stop people making it look like yours if that's what you so desire. Mm. Um, and that was a super useful avenue. But through that, I kind of got. Um, got to understand a little bit more about how 
other companies kind of exercise their intellectual property rights over accessories in particular that are made for a particular device. Um, and off the back of that, it's kind of shifted my model now really where um, when I'm thinking about stuff that I can make with my 3D printers or my laser cutter or on my CNC, if it's for my own use, I can make anything that I like. If I'm going to make the item and thinking of selling it, then what I won't do is I won't make a copy of an existing part that a manufacturer offers. I'll only offer parts that enhance the tool in some way, make it safer, cleaner, or just decorative, decoratively nice, nicer to look at. Um, and then that's it, right? Because everywhere else, really, it's the, the, the sharks are circling, really. It's kind of a dangerous land, really. Yeah, and I mean, you can kind of... You can kind of understand that, especially with something like a power tool um, and a replacement part, because, like you said, you know, from a from a risk point of view, there, you know, you've got someone who might download a replacement part or download the the STL of a replacement part, and then yep. the print quality isn't up to scratch for what the OEM part would be. And you can you can sort of understand the manufacturer's point of view from that side of. They want the the safety of their tool to be to their spec tested standards. Yeah. Versus someone with a printer that's not particularly well calibrated or old damp filament that's gone through it or, you know, something like that. Not enough yes. or whatever. But I I mean you touch on something that's kind of dear to me because my day job, I'm a technology risk manager for a large um uh transmission operator of electricity you might say national perhaps they operate grids all over the place um, <laughs> wishing to name them um, so I'm a technology risk manager there and you know that sort of risk management side is is really quite quite important for anybody starting out in business I don't really don't think it really matters whether you're making coasters that you're going to sell at a craft fair or you know mm. uh, letter openers for example um, uh, that sort of thing, you know, being mindful of your liabilities as a maker, I think, is something that I've learned quite uh, a lot. Mm. Um, and ha having good um, public liability insurance helps, and making sure that when you've um, registered for your liability insurance, you've properly classified what it is you make as well. So you're not just um, uh, insuring yourself against the process, which would might be woodworking, for example. I make things out of wood, right? It's a very mm. easy tick box. But to work with um, your broker to um, or a brokerage and fill a more detailed questionnaire out so that you can list everything mm -hmm. that you make, you get a much more tailored quote. And interestingly enough, when I went in to get my business's insurance and um, or insurance for my business and just said um, woodworker stroke cabinet maker, because that was the thing that was listed, um, uh, the insurance quote came through I think 40% higher than um, had I gone in and listed specifically the mm. activities mm. within the business and in particular the things that the public would were going to come into contact with so things I like make the outputs you know small furniture items um, signs things made out of plastic um, CNC things and so on the minute you get boiled down to that, then essentially you end up already in that mindset of risk assessing the thing you make and performing, you know, uh, fairly, um, it doesn't have to be detailed really, but, you know, 
reasonable searches to ensure that the thing that you're selling doesn't have to comply with some piece of legislation. You know, so yeah. if you're making wooden letter openers, for example, you better pay close attention to the um, the knives legislation in the UK if you want to um, sell them. Uh, you need to make it look not like a knife. That's the idea, really. Um, but you know, it's it's one of those one of those things, really. That unless you're sort of, um, you know, if you're going to make and sell stuff, really, you've got to think about these kind of extra steps in your thought process in order to get stuff done. And like I say, yeah. being mindful of other people's intellectual property, not copying, mm -hmm. um, checking to see whether the design is in the public domain before you copy it. That's a good idea. All of those steps really are kind of in you know necessary things if what you're trying to do is not necessarily make a living but certainly turn over a small amount of money to fund your interest really yeah mm. it's i mean it's a like the business side of being a maker has the potential to be quite a minefield for for those who don't mm. go in with thought that there's got to be more to me than just making something and selling it yes yeah Absolutely. And um, yeah, but I mean, you know, I, I, I'd learned business at school. There was a thing called, um, I don't even know whether it's a thing now in schools these days. It was Young Enterprise Scheme back when I was a sprog. And we all had to, were given a seed money of 100 quid to set up a tuck shop, basically. That's what most kids did with a, with a Young Enterprise Scheme. Um, uh, we made um, the, 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 the school that I went to, Queensbury School in Dunstable. Um, the year that I went through, we um, started off thinking gardening services would be quite a good idea, and then we just didn't like the public. I think it's probably a fair assessment of that, you know. Very fair, yeah. Um, did the tuck shop thing at school. I mean, that's what everybody does, right? You know, and then um, started making uh, soft toys, teddy bears, in fact. Um, huh. Just because one of the girls in um, my class, um, Nicola Shorter, her name was. So there you go. She gets a bit of a shout out. Um, she uh, was really into needlecraft and made um, soft toys out of, you know, that sort of plush, furry stuff that soft toys are made from. Um, and she had some patterns for an elephant and a teddy bear and a few other kind of things. Lob that was easy to sew together. It's a bit like a potato with eyes. Um, <laughs> and uh, we sewed these things up and sold them and actually did a pretty decent job of, of flogging them. But again, I think that was really the sort of um, you know, all of the ideas because, you know, the scheme itself didn't want the public to be harmed as a result of loads of kids charging about the countryside <laughs> wanting to be Alan Sugar. right? Mm. Um, you know, leave all of the harm to Alan Sugar, can't we? And his like, you know, um, <laughs> and uh, and yeah, so they, they, all the ideas were vetted quite hard. But it was kind of something that stuck with me really when I started setting up. Um, a couple of kind of small hobby businesses later in life, really. But actually, you sort of scout out the market, who you're going to sell to, decide how yeah. you're going to do the thing you're going to do, how much you're going to charge. And then when you start thinking about what your fixed costs are, then, you know, something like getting half-decent insurance that's going to cover you when it all goes peak tong, um, that's, that's, that's important too. So, um, but of course, you know, if you are sitting at home, thinking about starting a making business i would just say go for it the government will give you a thousand quid um you can earn before you can even start to pay tax on it um so you can 
I don't know, crank out some coasters and a, um, a cutting board or two from your little workshop, flog them down your, your fare and, you know, keep that turnover below a thousand and you won't have to pay tax on it. How about that? That's quite neat, isn't it? That's only for the UK, by the way. If you're listening in Australia, it may well be very different there. But um, in the UK, <laughs> that's... And that was my first year's money, right? It was done under that scheme. You know, I didn't have to... You know, my tax return was really easy. Um, but, you know, it's, it's within all of us, really. I think we can all take advantage of that, I think. Hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a good kind of... It's that classic, isn't it? Just go for it. Do it. I think so. Yeah, people will buy it. Yeah. You know, and, and those that don't will give you good feedback. That's the thing. It goes back to what I said originally when I was talking about Laura and her channel, right, you know, with her list. You know, if she puts out something that isn't going to work, then frankly, you know, um, they'll tell her. And and the same thing, you know, if you're stood at a market stall and nobody at all is interested in your cutting board, then you can at least find out why. If they've picked it up, handled it and put it down, you can, you know, and if it's because the guy next to you is selling them at half the price, and then that's something to go away and think about then again, isn't it, I suppose? I think that's the thing, isn't it? Sometimes they, the feedback is more valuable than the sale itself. Yeah, I think so. I mean, all the best ideas I've had, you know, if I think about all the things that I make and sell, all the best ideas that have been incorporated into them have come from customers that have asked something a bit odd. You know, they've they've asked a question because, you know, they've... I mean, in some cases, because a lot of them have bought my guides off of seeing them featured in Peter Millard's videos. They've got mm. them home. And despite the fact I send out a really well-designed um, set of instructions... Uh, which has, in a fun fact, right, but the instructions that go out with my um, track saw guides have illustrations that I did myself based on photographs that I robbed from Andy McClellan's um, uh, Gospel of Handyman's video where he reviewed them. <laughs> so they're actually his hands that I've traced in Photoshop um, in the instructions <laughs> to give me my, uh, my my illustrations. They look really good, very good. But anyway... Um, Does he know that he's a hand model? Yeah, I have. I have told him, um, and you better remember because there's no royalty to be paid for those. Uh, well, I can I can add him to the uh, show notes now. Yeah, you can add him to the show notes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. They do that. You know, he'll appreciate the uh, he'll appreciate the traffic to his uh, um, channel. I imagine. Well, it's going to be the Gosforth Handy Man, now, isn't he? The... Hey, I never <laughs> thought of that. Uh, hey, I got to yeah. I've got I've got to reprint those. Actually, that's that's. Uh, that's, that's the thought, isn't it? Have him, uh, have him forever remembered in a pun in the instructions that he's hands appearing. <laughs> That'd be great. Um, but yeah, in spite of the fact that those instructions are pretty comprehensive and um, you know take a really step, some people haven't quite got what they're for. I remember some guy um, sending me a picture of them in use where they were not just the wrong way around but upside down, and I couldn't understand how he'd even managed to make a cut with them that was even close to being accurate really um but what was really interesting was that when he explained what he'd done really which was kind of taped them to the end well had found a way of fixing them to the end of um a combination square so he could sort of slide the squares in under the rail and set the thing up in one go i thought to myself well uh, that's interesting, isn't it? Right, because I use the two squares rule to set my rail up for thin, uh, narrow rips on my uh, tracks all the time. So you set two scale, 
two squares up back to back. You separate them. One goes to either end of the rail. You get the rail set up to that mark first time. Now, if it's a normal cut, um, okay, you don't have to do any more. Wayside cut, you have to slip the jigs in between the combination square and the rubber um, splinter guard. And I thought, he's figured out a way of attaching my things to his combination square. So I, I ended up taking that away and kind of incorporating a slight tweak to the design to make that easier on my Barco squares. And now that's kind of a hidden feature of 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 the things. Yeah. Only that chap that got it all wrong, me and anybody watching this podcast now know. How about that? <laughs> well, listening to this podcast, should I say, if you're on a... On a well, they, can, they can watch as well. They can do both, yeah. But yeah, I mean, all uh, things like, for example, um, there's a little notch on the back, which everybody asks about eventually. I mean, you know, people tell me, say, it's a little notch at the back. What's that about? That's, and Jamie, I think you'll appreciate this, right? So how do you know when you're printing something that has to be accurate um, that your um, 3D printer is dimensionally accurate in both the X and Y direction? And the answer to that is that you put a notch in the opposite orientation in the back of the um, thing that you've made. So when it comes off the printer, you can measure with calipers across the width of the ridge, which is the key mm -hmm. dimension to make the thing work under the rail. And then you can also measure the notch occasionally to make sure that your um, printer is still printing accurately in the X direction as well as the Y, or the Y direction as well as the X, depending on how you've laid the mm. things out. And that's what it's for. And again, that was because um, somebody had um, read the specification sheet, got a set of calipers to um, their uh, guides and measured them, and they weren't as accurate as I was claiming. So I did replace them and it took me a while to figure out what the problem was. I took the printer that they were made on because everything is recorded in batches. So I know when I've sold something to a customer, who's got what. Mm. Um, and when I did the sort of diagnosis, I realized that my Prusa I3 Mark III was actually um, inaccurate in the X direction. And for that print, for some reason, I'd orientated the parts the other way around on the um, on the um, on the bed of the printer, and printed it all off, and it was 0.2 millimeters out. So that's these these, these little <laughs> things come from customer feedback all the time. You know, they're mm -hmm. folk are trying to catch you out because they can't believe that you can make something that's exactly 2.2 millimeters, and of course you can't. You know, there is a tolerance in there. Which you know, when you explain that you know we make, I make them to within two sheets of paper, of being kind of bob on. It's not point two millimeters really. If it's a four eighty gram per square meter mm. um, paper, um, and that's good enough, right? I mean, at the end of the day, the tip of your pencil that you use to mark the line you're trying to get accuracy against is wider than the tolerance on the guides. That's kind of how yeah. I've kind of pitched it up. Um, but other times people turn around and say, look, you know, I do a lot of bevel cuts. Um, and, you know, am I going to get, you know, do I need to, what, what's the curve like on a bevel cut? Well, of course, you know, basic geom trigonometry tells you that you tip some, can something over to, to 45 degrees and the hole it's going to make in the bit of timber that the blade went through is going to be wider than it was when it was at 90 degrees. Yeah. So again, that feature was added fairly early on. Um, 
uh, some guy said, look, you know, I'm really interested. And this was almost a deal breaker for him. It was a couple of weeks ago. And I did something on um, Instagram the other day with it. Because he, it seemed to be a deal breaker for him, really. He didn't seem to be interested in the guides unless he had a way of having them on his saw all the time. Is there a way, he said, you can uh, make it so that I can just kind of slot them into my saw like the Allen key that I use to change the blade is kind of slotted into the handle? Uh, and, he, you know, that's that's all he asked for. So I said, well, you know, if you buy the guides and the arbor hole cover, then I don't know, maybe I can think of something. I mean, already an idea was forming in my head. Mm. So, yeah, I just made a little um, box printed that separately, printed the arbor hole cover that I normally sell, and then used um, MEK to weld them together. And Bob's your uncle. Not the safest chemical to use um, in the workshop, <laughs> I might add. You know, plumber's, uh, plumber's mate um, for PVC pipes works just as well. It's just all I had. I know, I've got the most dangerous chemical you can have in a workshop, and it's all I have. But yeah. Uh, glued these things together and he loved it honestly he just thought um 3d printing and people like us with 3d printers with a spark of interest in solving problems um mm. it's just like the best things like and like i say you know everybody saw that instagram post the other day keith brown chimed in on it and said oh fantastic idea it wasn't my idea you know it's a customer. <laughs> he just posed a question because can i squirrel this somewhere on my ts55 and um not have to worry about it oh yeah if i put a little box on the side of your saw yeah you can do that yeah so yeah there's definitely a lot of merit to doing that kind of thing of i i, I think that's that's the the key point here isn't it is that it's not it's not just the 3d printers that are so important in that kind of thing it's the it's the understanding of the problem or the question yeah. and then being able to model something that fits the bill as well yeah yeah i think you're right i suppose that's where people like uh you know like yourself who if you're uploading things to things like printables or thingiverse you've got that kind of um that displacement of your skill to allow someone else who doesn't have the modeling skills but does have a 3d printer to then still solve that problem yeah yeah i mean those modeling skills were terrible when i first started honestly I mean, my biggest disappointment with getting a 3D printer home was the fact that I couldn't get it to do anything that I wanted it to. Mm. You know, yeah, sure, I could download any Dungeons and Dragons or Games of Thrones character, anything from the Star Wars or Marvel universe, and print that in a heartbeat. Right, that was dead easy. Mm -hmm. But you know, having an idea in your head and then figuring out actually how not to make it because a printer does that for you the slices are so cool i mean they do yeah. an excellent job yeah. of just taking a physical cad drawing or a cad model and slicing it up and getting it to print and these days you know with prusa slicer in particular which is what i use mostly at the moment um you know it even tells you when you've got it wrong when the overhangs are too big uh, when mm -hmm. the orientation's not right and so on so it's it's almost idiot proof but the skill that is so hard to master is turning out a decent model and designing with 3d printing in mind it needs, yeah. you need to inform yourself more about things like tolerances than you ever mm. have to with wood right i mean if you drill a pilot hole that's half a mil too small right your modern um hardened steel wood screw is going to go through that like a knife through butter maybe one one in 20 times it will split the end of your work and you'll have to glue it back together and 
find a bigger drill bit. But with 3D printing, right, if you want things to mate and fit together, you want things to fit around a physical dimension in the real world, you have to understand tolerances like you've never had to understand them before, really. That, and, and materials as well, you know, something printed in PLA and something the same model printed in something like ABS or ASA yeah. is going to, you know, the, the material shrinkage and things like that. But I mean, I think for me, I mean, you know, I I, I make a, a decent kind of I've, I've started a decent business based around 3D printing and CNCing and and laser cutting mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. Um, uh, but I, I'm I'm not by any stretch of the imagination, um, you know, uh, an expert in um, any of those. I'm not a sort of maker's muse or mm -hmm. Thomas Salander kind of guy. Right. As far as I'm concerned. My 3D printer um, is no more important than the impact driver that I used to drive screws in in the workshop. Yeah, right? it's just a I squeeze the impact driver, it turns, screws goes into wood, I'm happy, right? That's and you know if it won't go in, maybe I've got the wrong driver, perhaps, or maybe the battery needs charge. There's a little a small amount of adjustment you need to make in those tools to get them to mm -hmm. perform optimally. And I very quickly decided that. Uh, for example, going down the Ender route, for instance, just wasn't going to be for me. Uh, you know, I wasn't going to get a printer home and then have to print upgrades for it to get mm. the thing to get the quality that I wanted. So mm. I saved up for an extra two months, really, and went with the Prusa i3 Mark III. And even then, that wasn't quite where I wanted it to be. But fundamentally, yeah. like you say, Jamie, you just understand the materials that you're printing with, the constraints within the design, look at what other people that are serious about getting accurate parts off their printers are doing try those few things out it's not a world of possibilities there right it's a handful of key tips um and then stick with it i mean for me i mean these guides that i make the reason why i think they are successful is the fact that i very quickly arrived at a level of consistency off my printers where I could have them running all day long and the parts coming off would be identical to within, yeah. you know, 10, um, uh, one tenth of a millimeter at least, probably um, five one hundredths of a millimeter um, mostly. Um, and that wasn't done by kind of obsessively worrying about, you know, is it sat on a paving slab? You know, is there any sort of um, resonant ringing? Does the window have to be opened or closed when it's 22 degrees outside? None of that, really. Mm -hmm. I just set these printers up, just calibrated them once, and I just check every part that comes off and only calibrate them when those parts are out of tolerance, and that's it. Yeah. And I've only just started printing in ABS, and that's only because I've got a Bamboo Labs um, um, X1 Carbon recently. Nice. And and it's got the uh, charcoal filter on, so they don't stink quite as much as trying to print ABS nice. on, um, uh, you know, an open printer would be. Mm. Um, and that's that's so high temperature filaments really now are the thing that I've started to explore a little bit more because then that opens the door to other opportunities. Really, you know, the product can be nearer things that are hot. Um, you can yeah. make parts for car enthusiasts. And not have to worry about them melting when they leave them in the sun yeah. on the dash of their car, that sort of thing. 
Mm-hmm. So that's where I've started to sort of explore. And I've got this little mission over the next month or two, really, to put one new material through my printer each month, really. So it's ABS before Christmas. I've done some carbon stuff lately. Um, try to hang a door from a ceiling. I know this is going to sound a bit weird, really. <laughs> but I thought, you know, um, carbon, carbon fibre nylon would be um, would be okay to, to hang a um, homemade um slight uh, a door from the top of the door frame right. uh, there's a video come uh, if you, if you subscribe to the channel right and you want to see what i'm trying to do and how i failed it's going to be in that video right but i thought hanging a um 15 pound door from a or a 15 kilo should i say door from the ceiling using carbon 3d printed carbon parts would work and realized it, it it doesn't they yield you know, essentially nylon yeah. stretches over time under load um it's far better in compression which is what everybody else uses it for but but that was my month with um um carbon fiber nylon and um and valuable lesson learned i've moved on now i've got got that ticked off i've got parts i uh, have you tried it. the carbon fiber pla for that because that might actually work better in that instance. um yeah, I have. I, carbon fiber PLA was the first time I ever got a um, clog in my Prusa that resulted <laughs> in me uh, having to take the entire thing apart and um, learn how to disassemble and reassemble the hot end. Mm. Um, you know, um, but no, that 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 I think that the issue that I had with um, with my early experience with some of these filaments was essentially not realizing that hardened nozzles are the way to go and with abrasive materials um you need to be replacing them far more often than i was prepared to do so um i've kind of um yeah i've moved to to nylon ironic considering that you know how cheaply you can buy nozzles as well especially the brass ones compared yeah i know but i mean you know this now actually (laughs) bugger to get off once once you've put you know several spools of filament through a nozzle right it's not wanting to yield off that and I, I, I do a lot of stuff with um, PTG as well, and that tends to just like gum the outside of the nozzles up. And... Yeah. So PTG yeah. was my my go-to filament um, mm. uh, for quite some time, um, but my issue with it really was keeping the moisture content low enough to get consistent print results with it. Yeah. That's the thing, and I hate having to dry stuff. That's an extra step because in my in my life, right, I've got my day job, I've got evenings and weekends. And this factory that operates in my spare bedroom, right, churning out hundreds of orders a month, really, for customers. Um, and you very quickly grow tired of adding new processes to your already yeah. kind of process-heavy manufacturing business. So the idea of having to constantly drive PTG out was just not where I wanted to be. So I've deliberately avoided um, doing too much more with it. Mm. Um but the only thing that is really helpful for is you're making um, clips to hold cables to hoses, for example. It's got some nice elastic properties, which are it really handy does, for yeah. that. Um, but yeah. But like I say, I mean, I, you know, the thing that I feel like I'm most known for these days is, is, is Straw Bike Workshop as a maker of things rather than mm. perhaps the YouTuber and kind of community member, perhaps. I don't know. Maybe that's just my perception of things, given uh, how things have taken off. Um, Does that bother you I... at all? Sorry? Does that bother you at all? No, not at all. No, not really. 
because you know I, I feel like you know and this is why YouTube's taken a bit of a back seat for me to be honest because as things have taken off in the getting my little spare bedroom to crank out dozens of stuff uh, you know hundreds of items uh, each I, I've I've enjoyed every moment of that right and it, and I've just managed to kind of satisfy I suppose um, you know thousands of customers right you know I think gone past 10,000 customers I think wow. I've made more than um, more than 10,000 sets of the Traxor guides now wow. um, the little fix for Makita plunge saws where it doesn't have the depth stop kind of indicator that um, Festool tools have got I think I'm over a thousand saws fixed now really that's a half yeah. shot video that's nearly ready to go actually I can't decide whether to put that out next week or the week after but um yeah so I'm, I'm i'm quite that 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 is enormously satisfying and you know um people like peter millard and keith brown and gosworth handyman they've all featured my stuff on their um on their channels at one time or other and their videos actually turn out to be quite they're sticky right so people do go back and watch them lots of people yeah. use the um discount codes that peter has on on his links um and um, so I've been, but but most of my traction now is 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 off of the social media platforms. Really, it's is capitalising on um, selling platforms, and mm. um, I, I'm I, I I just don't get upset about how much these platforms charge you for being on them either anymore. It used to bother me, you know. Etsy was just absolutely raking it in off my hard mm -hmm. work. But actually, Etsy do a blinding job of reaching people that would never see my stuff. Mm. For, um, and and as a consequence of them developing a reach for me on that platform, you know, I'm 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 not making as much per item per sale, but I'm making something, and I wouldn't have got that customer any other way. And the same is true regarding um, eBay as well. So I ran a little experiment last year on eBay in October for a week. And actually that worked out quite nicely. I just need to sort of, I've now got the problem of managing inventory on multiple platforms. So I just need to <laughs> fix that problem. So I manage it on my website, uh, uh, Etsy. If I can solve eBay, then Amazon will follow off the back of that. And again, even though Amazon charge a fortune to distribute anything that you make, and I probably won't get anywhere near the margin on those items, it, they will have a reach to customers that I can't possibly yeah. get to. Yeah. And that's the that's the key thing. And then added to that, there is a little bit of exposure that I've got on Instagram and YouTube, and through my friends on YouTube like Peter and and Keith, their help in the past, um, you know, just keeps things going well enough mm. really for me me to feel like that's successful. So I get lots of people asking where the next video is, and my challenge at the moment is just a log jam of time. You know, if I'm having a particularly busy month making and selling stuff, then I'm going to be mostly doing that in my evenings and weekends. And I feel as challenged with that situation as people that watch my videos and want to see me make more as well. You know, it's one of those kind of because, you know, if I'm not the way I make videos is I go into the workshop and do something, film it, edit it and bung it up on YouTube. Um, so not being able to go into the workshop, film something, right? That's the first problem. Right? I haven't got enough time. I'm spending most of it really trying to run a small manufacturing business. Um, and again, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm probably a fool to not capitalize on the 
reach that I've got on the on YouTube in term mm. I don't want my channel to be like some others that you see where it's just about what they make and sell and that's it and I'm sure mm. that's valuable to people that are in the business of making and selling but I didn't get into YouTube really to try and gather that audience I wanted to try and just share useless knowledge that's in my noggin with people <laughs> yeah. that probably don't know about um you know something like you know how to fix a um uh, an x-carve or how to um how to use pop rivets properly or not as many of the comments <laughs> pointed out on that video um I, I think as well there's, there's an element of because you often hear people saying about you know that there's you, you do a search for one thing and you get 20 different people doing it 20 different ways and i i think that there's an element of truth to that but there's also finding a person that explains it in the way you know that it might be that you've got 20 people explaining the same thing the same way but sometimes one person might just gel with you a little bit better or explain yeah. something in such a way use the right metaphor or analogy that just just breaks through enough for it to click uh, absolutely I, absolutely yeah i mean if you look at um what stuart matthews is doing at the moment on um, property diy right? yeah. he's got a very formulaic uh, show and that's not said in a meant to sound like it's a bad thing right you know he's had a thought about what a good instructional video should look like mm -hmm. um I remember him saying to his, because I'm a Patreon member of his channel, so I hope he doesn't mind me kind of mentioning something that he told us all as patrons, really. But he did a video about how to wire a three-pin plug, right, which was 11 minutes long. Um, and he was a little bit disappointed about how unpopular compared to his other videos that um, video was by comparison. So clearly it wasn't landing with a, a you know perhaps a casual viewing audience, right? I mean, wiring a plug, three minutes, know you can get that in a TikTok video and perhaps do it in an entertaining way with a soundtrack and that would satisfy somebody's interest in th in British three pin plugs if you happen to be I don't know in Malaysia mm. or wherever um, but actually you know for somebody that wants to replace the plug on their kettle because I don't know they've they've damaged it in some way and they've got the thing from Amazon and they want to get the two things he did a really good job of showing how it should be done talked to people through it in a very engaging way um and sure it probably didn't land well compared to his other videos um, but for, for some it's going to work um and my my fix for the x carve for example the only people that are ever going to watch that video are people with x carves with the same problem so that <laughs> yeah. is probably the one that video has got the highest engagement of any mm -hmm. video that i've put up because people yeah. that find it watch the whole thing yeah. um and in terms of other measurements of engagement like likes comments i think just about everybody that's watched it's liked it everybody that's watched it's commented on it because it's you know suddenly they've had this epiphany about how to fix this uh, motor lock issue on the standard configuration because it's not documented not well mm. anyway um and yeah and, and and that's that's why i made the videos and and i just kind of you know the, the purpose of the channel for me for now is really just to sort of scratch that itch give something back you know find that way of explaining something that maybe works like you say for the for the hand, handful of people that just like a sort of beardy english guy 
with a soft voice <laughs> explain how to fix something or put insulation on their workshop walls. And, and sometimes you just need that thing that grabs your attention and takes yeah, you I, away. I, 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 I will admit to not enjoying editing if the requirement <laughs> of editing a video is to up the pace. You know, if the first six, sec if first six seconds of my video has to have 14 cuts in it in order for somebody to watch it, <laughs> they can jog on and go and watch somebody else's video. And I know that there are people like Matt, Matt Esley, for example, that do an excellent job in terms of cutting his, cutting his videos. But mm. I know from some of the comments that he's made about why he doesn't post videos so often, his challenge is that he's set the bar in terms of the efficiency of his um, editing um uh so that he actually has to do it that way or you know it's it's not the matt esley video that people want to see um so i'm comfortable with my pedestrian editing right um, <laughs> I, I just i just bang on the shots being set set up right and being in focus and even then i can't get that right half the time so I mean, that's set. why we just stop editing this <laughs> yeah set the bar low make it easy yeah better to get stuff out than to It'd be my hard drive. Exactly. Yeah, I've, I mean, one of the best videos that I've got on my channel, the one I enjoy watching the most of my own, is the unedited version of me putting together a um, kind of factory-made summer house, which was my first workshop. So I edited it all together. And um, so I, I know that my other half is watching because she's just got <laughs> just Alexa turn the lights, turn back, the lights on. back on. So <laughs> if you're watching, Tina, cheers. Thanks very much for that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can't do it because otherwise everybody else's lights is going to come on or go off. Um, so, uh, so, 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 yeah, it's, it's that unedited video of me putting the thing together because it was literally all of the uh, time lapse footage that I'd got from um, having assembled it. So, Tina and I kind of painting stuff on the first day, me making mm. jigs and kind of getting everything sorted on the second day and stuff. And for me, I just love watching that because it's it's slow, it's, it's interesting to watch. It's got that, um, got that. It's no commentary on it really. It's got that sort of sound of things being screwed and banged together and saws going off and so on. Um, yeah, and it's like what um, fifty-five minutes worth of footage, and it's 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 great and. And interestingly, you know, it's the video that got me over the four four hundred hours of work time, really, because when I put that up, people, for some strange reason, did want to watch the whole thing. There's a hell of a lot of merit to that kind of thing. Of, of um, I can't even think what they call it now, but it, it, it's quite a, a popular Slow concept. TV? Well, no, it, it's a popular conceptual kind of. Uh, strategy for people with any kind of neurodivergence um of like uh body doubling so while someone else is working you tend to be more productive yeah so people will often put you know if they if they want to concentrate on doing a block of work for half an hour or an hour or something they'll often put on something similar of that way i think that's where a lot of that kind of uh slower paced longer form content uh it's super valuable in that sense to, yeah. to have someone just working away in the background and have those kind of sounds of I know, it's, it's productivity. Funny, isn't it? a, a top tip for anybody that's got an Amazon uh, device that turns on when you call its name 
is you can ask it to play um, cafe sounds if you mm. want a bit of company when you're working from home. So I, I, you know, I used to work from home a fair bit before lockdown, uh, just because my job was a little bit more mobile back then. Um, and occasionally I'd find myself in a Starbucks or a Costa Coffee uh, working. And I used to achieve levels of concentration while working in coffee shops that I could never do at my desk or at, in, in, at home with it quiet. Yeah. And uh, this uh, this um, cafe sounds that you can get off the Amazon device is, is a godsend. I have it on all the time, you know. It's not so bad at the moment because my other half is at home and so there's other other sounds in the house but mm. you know i i find um that 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 sort of extraneous sound um kind of aids concentration i think it's almost looping us back to the beginning though with that kind of the uh, background sounds to tune out yeah and i, I think the, there is that kind of if things are too quiet it's very easy to get distracted by the slightest little thing because if you've got sounds that you that, that kind of reflect that 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 brain searching out for distractions kind yeah. of thing, it, it I mean, sort of my, forces you back into task. My other half would say I've got some some problem in that regard because um, <laughs> like the, when the when the when the uh, uh, go on, cooker, Andy, add another one to the tally. <laughs> no, no, when, when the cooker goes off, um, you know, say you know dinner's done in the oven, I'll go out and I'll take the stuff out of the oven and I'll turn the oven off and it will still be beeping. It's literally like 10 seconds where I can hear the beeping and then after that it's gone. Um, I can't hear it anymore. And the same with the bathroom fan. So um, I, I, I stop hearing that. And the worst thing in the world really for me in the workshop, right, is um, I've got a, um, a record power um, chip extractor and it's not, it's, it's a um, three quarter horsepower thing 700 watt thing uh, and it's it's quite you switch this thing on it doesn't bother the neighbors that's why i bought it but i can have it on if i'm doing like multiple i'm going from the bandsaw to the table saw to the router table mm. i'll leave it on as i'm moving the hose between those tools as i'm going from one operation to the next if i do that for more than 10 minutes i can stop hearing it and i've walked out the workshop a couple of times and just left it on mm. I'm, <laughs> I'm just unaware and it's even worse with um, ear defenders on if you're you know yeah Stuffing a, so I've had to sort of put a light, um, just inside my door, of the workshop that is on as I try to leave, that indicates that there is something on in the workshop, over a sort of trickle, cult, um, current, that yeah. um, indicates that I've left a tool on because um, I, I need that prompt. Um, <laughs> I've, I've got a little. Um, I've modified um, like a. Um, a key code door lock thing so that uh, it indicates uh, that the door's open if um, somebody's on the outside um, and on yeah. the inside it tells me that the door's safe because um, something happened um, a couple um, about a year ago and this is quite innocuous right so I didn't kind of end up losing a limb and lying bleeding on the floor it could have easily been that what happened was that Tina came out to the workshop with a cup of tea and couldn't get in and it was raining. So she got wet until she banged on the door until I opened it. And then it kind of occurred to me that actually Tina didn't know how to get into the workshop. Um, yeah. Wouldn't have been able to perhaps recall the code without going back into the house and finding it on the fridge. Mm. Um, and I suddenly thought, oh shit, you know, if I, I could be kind of, you know, in serious trouble and people could be stuck on the outside, not able to get in. 
So mm-hmm. I made some, I made a stick basically, which I cable tied to the handle so that when it was in the unlocked position, so the handles kind of one way or the other, um, it showed um, the end of the stick had um, open on the, uh, so I've got a window in the door. It's important to understand there's a window in the door, the stick comes down, the um, end of the stick can be seen through the window and it has the word open on it so that when Tina comes out with a cup of tea, she can just open the door. Mm. Or if I'm lying on the floor Fantastic. bleeding and I've asked um, Amazon's device to find <laughs> Tina, uh, she can get in and um, plug up the gaping hole in my arm or whatever it happens to be, you know. Um, and I'm guessing there isn't a corresponding one when it's locked to say closed, check the fridge. Uh, no, no, but it does actually, it does when it's in the up position. And I, I, I must admit, I need to do a video on this or at least do a little bit more on Instagram. Yeah, you should. Because yeah. in the up, because I, I, I nicked all these ideas from the railways. My dad was a model railway buff and he used to design his own signaling for his little train sets, really. And of course, all railway signals have boards that blank the signal when it's in a particular mm. position, right? Um, especially the light control one. I just copied that idea. So when it's in the up position, you can't see the word safe. That's hidden behind a little screen. Um, and the thing that swings up from its hidden position when it's down is the word locked. So from the inside, I can see whether I'm safe or the door's locked. Uh, and from the outside, you can see whether the door's open and cups of tea can come in. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's definitely worth a video. That's got to be I mean, worth do you think? Video. Oh, I'll do that. Yeah, yeah. It, absolutely. Oh. But also, it, it's just reinforcing to our kind of like American friends that that us Brits are entirely fueled by tea. You know, <laughs> all is. of our problem solving <laughs> and inventions are tea based to start with. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, the fact that there was no tea grown on the moon meant that we didn't get there first. I think is the. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> but we found India and the West Indies. You know, as a as a as a continent i think really as a as a result of looking for tea so um you know we'll leave the moon to the americans and uh we'll stick with uh, the east india company and india and uh and, and safe safe mods to your workshop although that could possibly be con- con- controversial perhaps maybe i don't know let's not go there um yeah well, let's let's move on to attention grabbers then, shall we? At least yeah. So yeah, the things that have been grabbing rest. attention. It's that kind of sort of time of the evening. To, yes, I was so looking forward to this. To we've kind of yeah. taken a couple of them already. So yeah. Um. So uh, we've mentioned uh, Laura Kidd, and um, yeah. Uh, if anybody grew up in the nineties listening to Ned's Atomic Dustbin, um, look for Obey Robots on um your favourite streaming service, and you've got Ned's Atomic dustbin with a female voice and it's amazing so uh that's that's been the only thing that i've had on in the car for like three months now and um and even the thing that i bought last week that i played this weekend has has been kind of relegated to the um pop door pocket and um obey robots is back um and like i said we mentioned um laura's videos um earlier uh, they're mostly video essays. The two that I strongly recommend is How to Get an Album in the UK Top 20 Without Selling My Soul. It's the first one. And the second <laughs> one was My Secret Weapon as an Independent Musician. That's where he's being interviewed by a guy in the US. She's being interviewed in the, by a guy in the US and talks about using a mailing list as a way to directly contact her fan base. And that's, as I say, the, that was the game changer for me, realising that. 
Mm. Mm. Um, couple of other things, right? Um, uh, it goes without saying, new Yankee, a new Yankee workshop is on YouTube now. Yes, uh, pretty much yeah. the entire back catalogue. At least I thought it was, but they still keep re releasing episodes every month. Um, mm. So you know, uh, YouTubers can go home now, right? Norm's got it covered. Right, just about every project you can imagine has been done on his show. Um, and what I like about them, right, is that actually. If you wanted to start a YouTube channel tomorrow and copy a model, the new, new, Yankee, new Yankee Workshop is pretty much it. Because despite the fact that there's a lot of detail, he doesn't hang around, right? You know, essentially, yeah. he'll explain the operation. You'll see it done. He's off onto the next operation. I, I, I found that really quite um, refreshing, I think, to see. Um, when I think about some of the videos that I've made and some of the other videos that I tend to watch, that are kind of more like lifestyle magazine shows rather than making videos, right? To go back to the stuff that I remember when I was a young adult trying to do things around the house, that, that, that's, that's my Yeah, opinion. I used to love watching New Yankee Workshop. I haven't seen it um, in years. Yeah, so there's another channel that's um, re-emerged. So Tim Hunkin, he's probably been yeah. mentioned perhaps on, on he the has. But yeah. um, so... I don't know whether this was him or not, right? But uh, me and the other half, we like going to Southwold Pier fairly regularly. And you've got the Under the Pier show on there, plus the um, Southwold Pier sign, and there's a fountain on the pier. They're all um, Tim Hunkin installations. And I do remember seeing this nice. kind of wizened old man kind of pottering around inside the uh, in the arcade. I don't know whether it was Tim or not. <laughs> If it was, and I missed the opportunity to say hi, that was an opportunity lost because he did a, um, a show on Channel 4 called The Secret Life of Machines, which again is available on YouTube via his channel. Yeah. They've all been remastered. Um, and when I was a young engineer at McDonnell Douglas, um, that was like the only proper engineering type show that was on TV. We'd lost the great egg race, that had gone. Um, anything else that was showed the serious business of putting something together, that was on um, uh, Discovery Channel, probably, mm -hmm. um, or just not done very well at all, like changing rooms. Um, and <laughs> well, um, didn't yeah. last very long. Like beat that Einstein. Do you remember that one? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh, I used yeah. to love that. It was, it was a great show. Oh, there's, 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 I mean, as, as a kid, I used to love shows like Jigsaw and um, How oh, to, How to, yeah. Mm. And there was another one that was on the BBC that was kind of. Um, all about you know how inventions were made um can't remember what that was called eureka that was it yeah um yeah so but i so when he started up on youtube he started re-releasing these things and then he did his secret life of components and i the first video i think got practically no vi no views i mean he slipped onto in onto youtube no ceremony uh, and i sent him a note really gushing over how much of a personal hero he was and how much as a young engineer, I looked at people like him and thought I can see myself in that person. And so, you know, mucking about with screwdrivers in the back of computers is probably a good thing for me to be doing as a job. Um, but not realizing how successful as an artist he was and the fact that he was a trained, he went to art school, he wasn't a trained engineer and his art installations are mechanic in nature and just stunning pieces of art and his animations as well. I just think are amazing. So 
I've been obsessing over his secret life of components um, all the time. And annoyingly, he did one on um, screws and fixings, I think. Nuts and bolts, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, the other week. And completely stole an idea that I've been gestating for three years. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and yeah, taught me a lesson about actually making the bloody videos and putting them up rather than thinking about them for three years and then having somebody steal your idea. But um, if you were going to have anyone yeah, anyway. else steal your idea, yeah, would you rather it be anyone other than him? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And to be honest, he's welcome to it. To be honest, I'd give him all of my ideas if he could just make them. Um, that would be fine. I wouldn't, even, I wouldn't even want any credit or royalty for it, really. I just love the way he presents. And, um, you know, it's something that I can watch with my other half, whereas half the, half the rest of YouTube, really, she'll leave the room for, to be honest, because there's just blokes like me talking about wood. You know, um, and there are just two final things I want to mention, really. Um, so if you're looking for something new to watch um, that's been around for a while, perhaps a little bit hidden, there's a guy in the US called um, Eric Strebble is his name. Yeah, now, he's yeah. a product designer and maker, and he's got a channel which um, I've been going through at some length because for me what he's showing is not just the stuff he can crank out but he's lifting the lid on how to manufacture things for manufacturing's sake not as mm. kind you know it's not like a lot some other channels where they're showing you the how to make 1500 chopping boards in a weekend kind of production he's taking it back to ask the question what is the best way to make something and here's a technique that I will use to make a prototype to prove the point. And, you know, he's obviously plugging services like PCBY a lot, but he's he's at least showing the jump off point as him as a maker, yeah. designer into those services because he only wants to be resin casting one prototype, then handing it on to a firm in China to make the rest. And that to me sounds like a winning formula. And I've been lapping up his videos for a while. Yeah, they're good. They're and then, good. and then uh, the final uh, thing is, there's a guy called David Hillowitz. He's got a channel called David Hillowitz Music. Now, I'm a bit of a music buff. My first video on my actual Straw Bite Workshop channel is actually a re um, me getting a Novation synth groove box thing out of its box and playing a tune with it within 15 minutes. Right? I thought I was going to be um, a music channel when I started on YouTube um, and kind of built a workshop and got distracted for the last seven years. So, um, but I'm still kind of plugged into music making. I'm not very good. I understand a little bit of music theory. I can make a synthesizer sound like um, uh, a pop act from the 1980s, early 1980s. You know, I can copy all of the Depeche Mode back catalog quite, quite happily all day nice. long and be happy. Can um, you still do the dances? So, no, 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 I don't do that anymore. It's a dodgy hip. Um, so, um, but David Hillowitz is an interesting channel. He's a trained violinist. Um, he does lots of experiments with sound. Um, he used a video recorder to process sound to get an aged um, feel to some some uh, voices that he created on a synth. The interesting thing is, is he's got a little bit of making about him. So he kind of assembles out of the stuff he's got in his studio, um, a mm. rig that does something experimental, which I quite like. But the important thing is that he's got a very 
nice way of presenting information. And I kind of feel that, you know, in terms of temperament and tone and level of quietness and the editing pace, he's kind of putting videos out which are just that step above where I am at the moment. So I've been watching his stuff, really studying it and trying to get better off the back of that. So they're the things that have been grabbing my attention this week. Nice. Cool. Jimmy, what about you? Uh, the main thing for me has been um, the finishing off Star Trek Picard, which has been an absolute journey. Um, back when I was uh, in my sort of formative years, um, I was quite isolationist for a while, um, struggling with mental health problems and things like that. And the uh, the crew of the Enterprise with uh, Star Trek Next Generation were were uh, there for me for quite a lot of time. And uh, this recent series of Star Trek Picard has kind of wrapped up the story entirely and uh, it's kind of put the uh, put the full stop at the end, which is uh, was a wonderful journey for me to go through. I know it's it's had some phenomenal feedback from from a lot of other people. Which is yes, been, it's been a great series, really. really I think has, they were yeah. hampered a little bit by everything being locked down. Um, yes. So the, so the yeah. second series, I think, was a was a little weaker. But yeah, I, I would agree. I mean, when I think back to my formative years, we're probably about the same sort of age, I guess. Um, uh, you know, Star Trek: Next Generation would come on. It'd be the first time out for it. Beyond two thousand would be on after it. On, on the telly and um, you know that's kind of stuck with me really I, I really did lap it up it did look like a, a proper show to me back then mm. um, and when Voyager came out honestly that was all we were talking about at work for um, for weeks really Voyager 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 and then obviously then it's not like a streaming service these days right you have to stop watching it for 12 months yeah we can watch it again exactly yeah that's cool. Yeah. I like that. that so that, that that's been the um, the main bit of impact for me this week. Um, but this weekend I've been uh, doing a bit more prep for Maker Central um, for the Make with Makers stuff. Um, I'm making a dent in a bit of the outside, sort of uh, trying to give myself a fighting chance at doing a bit of work out there, um, bit of patching up some of the uh, damage to the roof where cats. From the local neighborhood have been jumping on and off it and making holes in the roof and things so yeah uh, cor corrugated plastic stuff but a bit of uh, a bit of maintenance outside yeah i think we'd, we'd, we'd need to uh we need an entire podcast on its own for me to go through my <laughs> issue with neighbors cats yeah <laughs> some of them are lovely there's one sure who's an absolute pain in the backside yeah. I mean, the best cats, I think, are the ones that are so far away they never make it to my house. They're the best cats. I love them. All of them. Universally. So if you're in San Francisco and got a cat, it's the best cat in the world. Because it's not going to be in my back garden tomorrow. <laughs> Leaving little parcels in the lawn. Um, yeah. Or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, yeah there's one who is uh, it's just really, really cocky little sod. So he knows... And he just he wanders through from a few doors down, and he'll just he'll just wander through, and he'll just stop, and he'll just look at you, and then he'll off, off he goes. And there's a uh, it's a very a very aged lurcher next door, who um, 
She's probably, you know, 16 or something like that. But the second she sees him, she's straight out of there. And he knows. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. Anyway, how about you, Andy? What's been grabbing your attention? Uh, I think I've been grabbing attention this week. Had a haircut, as you can probably see. Hey, well over you. Fine haircut it is, too. Yeah, it's well over you. I'd... Yeah, I think I think there's a certain age you reach where a haircut is a good day out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you can forget standing in a field with glow sticks in woolly boots, right? You know, a good haircut. Nice sit down, a chat. Yeah, chat. Yeah. And look, you, I do that. The trick is to go in the rain on a weekday rather than on a Saturday afternoon. Oh, absolutely. That's, rain that's on a weekday. Joyce working from home. Yeah. I can say yeah, that now exactly. because... Everybody at work will be hopefully tucked up in bed and not um, <laughs> watching this. Um, started uh, making a little bit of progress on my treasure trade for Fools of Tools treasure trade. Very nice. Uh, Very nice. Not much, but some progress, and I've got some more mapped out. Uh, still been tidying the tinkerage, still been tidying the men's shed and putting organizers there. Did a bit more teaching this week uh, at the men's shed, and that's that's like to up up the uh, what's happening so i actually went in on an extra day for the men's shed to do more organization because it's not finished but uh, teaching others how to use tools uh quite That's enjoyable cool. really yeah it's, it's, hmm. it's sort of certain have you ever uh, thought about going into teaching Andy? well there's a thought yeah <laughs> you'll be a teacher um but it was it was an interesting one this week actually it kind of really hit the the heartstrings one of the um one of the fairly newer members sort of was asking somebody else if if there was somebody who could teach him how to make dovetails now there's only i think there's only one guy and there may be some others but there's only one guy that i know of that hasn't been around for a while although he actually came on thursday so we're like kind of said said oh can you have a chat with him so i had a chat i don't know how to make dovetails one thing i want to do one day it's not easy you know we have a jig, but no one's used it yet. We don't even know if it's complete. Uh, you know, what do you want to make? He said, well, I want to make a box. Okay. Said, well, there's some other ways of making boxes. You know, you can, we could do finger joints. You know, we haven't got a jig for that, but it'd be easy enough to set up a jig for that. And we could do uh, just mitered corners. Yeah, that could look nice. And we could add some splines. And that would, you know, give them a bit of strength and whatever. And so what materials do you think they're using? So I'm using oak. Okay. And after a bit of a conversation and kind of a bit of explanation about kind of you know table saws because he didn't know what a table saw was um it was like okay well you know what uh what is yeah this this you you're obviously really keen about making this box it turned out yeah he hadn't done any woodwork for 70 years i mean it shows his age said, well, what's, what's the box for and he said it was like it's for for my wife's ashes and it's just like oh it was like mm-hmm. okay yep yeah. Tuesday, I'll start teaching you how to do woodwork. We'll 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 make you a box. So we've sorted him out with some oak, and we've sorted him. I've there's 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 obviously plenty of things like pine and stuff. So we'll we'll start with pine. I've got some oak that you can use just for kind of practice on hardwood, and then we'll do a fine one. It was just like, I mean, it's partly what men's sheds are about, but it was no, just like, true. yeah, yeah, looking at the heartstrings or what? It was just like okay yeah i'm not quite sure what to say about that one but it yeah it's yeah it's yeah that's gonna be a, that's gonna be a, a good one i think so yeah. it must be really rewarding teaching adults in particular skills yeah. that just passed I mean, them by 
Yeah. I think a lot of times it's forgotten. Yeah, sometimes yeah. They, they have, they've just never done it or they've forgotten it. Or I mean, we've got, um, we've got another chap. Yeah, he's, he's been doing quite a lot of making. I mean, some guys turn up, they just want to chat and a, a, a coffee. And some guys, yeah, they want to do, like me, they want to be mostly in the workshop. I've got one chap, yeah, he's a really nice guy, yeah, trained as a carpenter when he when he was apprentice, um, did a lot of kind of roofs and things like that. But yeah, until he came to the men's shed, yeah, he'd, he'd never used the, some of the power tools. Because, yeah, when he trained as a carpenter, he didn't have power tools. No. Yeah, mm. they just didn't have them. Yeah, everything was done by hand. Yeah, there, there was no, there wasn't, yeah, you didn't even have the kind of sort of skill saws. Yeah, no, everything was cut no. by hand. And you'll still sometimes grab a, you'll see him sort of ripping a piece of plywood in, yeah, down with a, a hand saw. It's just like, we could put the table saw, or we could use the band saw, or we could use the circular saw. It'd be a lot quicker. Like, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's what he's used to. Yeah, he'll, he'll yeah. grab, a, he'll grab a, a hand plane before he'll grab, yeah, something's powered. And it's, it's, it's nice to see that. And it's nice to sort of have the conversation. But it's also, like you say, it's really nice to sort of show people who, yeah, have either just not had that opportunity or um, one of the guys I've been teaching last couple of weeks, yeah, he did a course about 10 years ago where he made a, a chopping board and he wants to make another chopping board. And it's like, yeah, it's just like reminding him about sort of, sort of mm. there's a certain responsibility as well to kind of, yeah, make sure that the tools are going to be used properly yeah. and from the point of view of protecting the tools but of course for protecting yeah protecting them as a users you know this a table saw doesn't doesn't bother a table saw whether it's a piece of wood or whether it's your fingers no um, yeah my yeah. saw terrifies me most days yeah i mean I, I i mean before i was a teacher and when i was working in industry i was using a couple of Watkins, one one was a just a good size cabinet saw. The other one was a huge panel saw. And if I think back to the stuff I was doing on those, yeah, literally fingers millimeters away from the blades sometimes, and it terrifies me to think about it. I certainly wouldn't and couldn't do it now. Yeah, uh, I certainly went through a phase. I got rid of my own table saw to make space for my lathe just a little while ago, and I hadn't used it in five or six years and i didn't i didn't want to use it either mm -hmm. yeah I, I it wasn't a it was it was cheap i bought it second hand it wasn't we've got a, a nice metabo at the, the the men's shed and it's it's much nicer much safer in my opinion than, than the thing i got rid of um not that it's actually much different it's just a bit more solid <laughs> a little bit bigger um but it's just yeah it's Obviously, we've got to protect the users, of, and we have to protect the equipment because, yeah. yeah, from damage. But just given that people, yeah, sort of saying, yeah, yeah, have, yeah, you've, you, I'm like, well, yeah, one day I taught them how to use the table saw, uh, compound miter saw, uh, drill press, yeah, I've also taught them how to use a uh, scroll saw, yeah, a bunch of tools that he's not used in a while or before in some cases, mm. yeah. I mean, it's, it, that's that's uh, um, Carl Pope is doing quite a lot of um yes um courses with people in his area i think he lives in the whole beverly kind of space yeah in uh in yorkshire and you know you see nothing but smiles in the instagram pictures of people yeah. you know holding up 
you know, and it's not an insult, but you know, quite basic bills that they've made themselves, and they absolutely. And that, but that's the key phrase, isn't it? They made themselves. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And that is just so. I mean, if I think back to the first thing I made with my dad, it was something to hang his keys on when he got home, and all it was was a bit of pine um, tongue and groove with the. Uh, Groove, uh, the, 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 the groove uh, planed off. That's the bit that yeah. I did, and, a, and, a, um, and a, a cup hook screwed in it with keys written in it in my ten-year-old yeah. scroll. I loved it. It was that's still at my mum's house. You know, it's 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 still there. You know, and it's yeah, it's, it's, it is it is the making it yourself. I think that's a key thing, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And the last thing that uh, for this week, I've been uh, binge listening to ADH Big Brother. Uh, it's a podcast that was recommended uh, by Adam Savage. Um, okay. Which apparently at the time that that happened, it kind of did this sudden surge in view of listens rather and downloads. It's funny that. Yeah, <laughs> Adam Savage's show. <laughs> but um, it's, for, it's, it's specifically aimed at uh adults with adhd um interesting particularly those with maybe a comorbidity of uh, depression as well um mm. i give kind of coping strategies they're all really short which i mean i've i think i've got about 10 there's about 75 80 episodes and i think i've got about 10 left um and i've pretty much binged the park because they're, they're all 15 minutes i think there's one that's longer than 15 minutes um and so it's just a, yeah if one point seven time speed as well yeah i listened to a bunch um, yesterday working on the tinkering she was just like several hours of it just one after another mm. um, but some really interesting points and and very much for me not officially diagnosed i was um very much kind of going yeah recognize that yeah recognize that yeah recognize that as well oh, and that and yeah and that it's um, called adhd big brother yeah yes uh, yeah somebody just in yeah, the chat just found out so just uh popping that in the chat the comments so people can see that it'll be in the show notes as well uh tomorrow so definitely one to recommend oh uh, yeah taking a listen for sure yeah yeah carl where could What's the best places for people to find you? Oh, so you can... I'll, uh, one of the uh, unique things about my channel name, Strawby, is that for quite a while it was a Google whack, right? In the sense that um, <laughs> you stick it into Google and basically you only found me. So you can put Strawbyte. It's on the screen, um, S-T-R-A-W-B-Y-T-E, into any search engine and you'll find all of my social media platforms. Uh, but it's a Strawbite workshop on YouTube and Instagram. And strawbite.com is my website. That's it. Brilliant. Thank well, you very much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. I can't believe yeah. I've spoken for so long, to be honest. I haven't spoken to my <laughs> other half much all day because I've been in the workshop. So she's going to be pretty cheesed off, I think, really, about how long I've been yakking to you guys, really. Well, um, I'm guessing she's enjoyed it by the fact that she's well, I hope so. the light back on for I'll, you. I'll find out in five minutes, won't I? <laughs> <laughs> thank no, you for writing i've really enjoyed it and i've been looking forward to this all week so thank you for making Good my job. week much thank you brighter. for coming yeah, yeah absolutely yeah. All right. on that note we'll say goodbye to folks so thank you folks okay. we'll see you next week
Yeah, we will. Cheery bye. Bye. Bye.